What's in store for your business this week at Staples? Doing business like a CEO while saving like a CFO. Staples has all the supplies you need to run your business like a boss at prices that'll make your bookkeeper smile. Now that is an achievement. Everything from markers and pens to 2019 desk calendars. And right now, a 12-pack of Sharpie markers and an 8-pack of Expo dry erase markers are only $4.99 each. At Staples, where there's a whole lot in store. Ends $119.19 in-store only. The Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio is on the air. What is at eye level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery, we try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. And now the moment you've all been waiting for. Shadows and Curtis Conceptions of the Online Network. Good evening and welcome to, well, we're knee-deep in the middle of the third season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight, uh, coming off of his hit transformation of gothic soap opera Dark Shadows, from a vaguely Rebecca-esque turn-of-the-century gothic into an all-out monster fest, Dan Curtis proceeded to both theatrical release with House of the Night of Dark Shadows and a decade-long run as the king of TV movie horror. Uh, often in partnership with Richard Matheson, Curtis would not only tackle adaptations of traditional horror classics, Jekyll and Hyde, Dracula, Dorian Gray, Frankenstein, Turn of the Screw, but create several of his own with efforts like The Night Stalker, The Night Strangler, Norless Tapes, Scream of the Wolf, Dead at Night, Burn Offerings, and Trilogy of Terror. So join us as we delve into some decidedly dark and shadowy areas of the televised medium as we talk the heyday of Dan Curtis Productions. So uh, with me is my uh, also uh, not Irish uh, co-host, <laughs> Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello. Hey, hello. I'm here. And, you're here. Uh, you're not out uh, drinking green beer and. <laughs> oh, 
Oh no, actually, actually, because uh, I was I was ill a couple weeks ago. I actually have had in two weeks one beer, and wow. that's been it for alcohol. Um, not not because I was ill because of that. It's just like I'm kind of I cleanse my system. Okay. Uh, and uh, I am not crazy about green beer anyway. Back when we were kids, it was like, oh, little green beer. I wonder what's going to happen, man. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the whole St. Patty's Day thing. You know, it's fun. If you're Irish, is cool. You know, everybody has their own way of doing their thing, you know. Yep. And uh, I, 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 I don't goof on people like that. You know, it's, it's, it's okay. Just keep it in... Uh, the word. Uh, uh, gosh, I forgot the word escaped me. But just like, don't overdo it, damn it. <laughs> you know, that, that tends to happen a lot. Yeah. Especially in the East Coast area, Hoboken, New York City. Uh, right now, people are probably throwing up on the trains. Thank you very much. Yes. Go through with a strike, right? <laughs> Yes, thank goodness. Yeah, they didn't even. T- there was supposed to be a real strike uh, on New Jersey Transit. Yes, for those people who live down here this way, um, they didn't even mention anything about it. it. Came and went. Oh, that was a good thing. Okay, good. Uh, but I'm really glad, anyway, that we segue to those who are new to the show. This is what we do. Uh, I, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad I feel much better. This was a bump from last week. Um, I was just like feeling like shit. So I couldn't do it, but uh, I'm feeling much better in every way, and every day I'm getting better and better. So <laughs> you and Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Oh wait, he's dead. <laughs> I, I, yeah, thank you. Um, this, is, this is a different show for us. Um, I think the more we delve into these niche areas, we we were you know for for both of us, Doc and myself, I think we're we're giving because we started out with our first season just doing our real big loves with the genre film stuff, stuff yeah, yeah, and then just branching out and branching out. And each time we add a season and more shows, and we talk about it before we you know, obviously do this. Um, we're like, you know, we haven't done this, and we like this, and he likes this, and I like this, and then we come to some agreements, and it's like, well, you know, let's just like, by the time we're done with this thing, we just probably would. We have talked about everything we want to discuss, so we've got a lot more going, uh, not even on the schedule, so uh, I hope people enjoy stuff like this, like we're going to do tonight. So, do you want to start with a little about Dan Curtis or uh, well, Dark Shadows? Because we're going to really pretty much talk about the movies. We're actually going to discuss Dark Shadows at a later date, right? Yes, and I already have a fellow, like I mentioned last time, a friend of mine, uh, who is very big on Dark Shadows, and he has promised to get back into the collection and bone up in time to do that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we haven't set a date for it yet, but it is definitely going to happen. We are doing a Dark Shadows-only show. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of apropos in a weird way, I guess, if you were stupid and you actually, like, believe, you know, people's Hollywood, uh, pseudonyms, uh, because, you know, it's St. Patrick's Day and he, oh, look, Dan Curtis, that sounds Irish, right? No. Uh, <laughs> he was born Daniel Meyer Cherkos, uh, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, actually, of all places, um, back in 1927. Uh, he lived to be 78, um, 
He obviously was married, uh, but basically he was – I mean, I don't know his whole backstory. I wasn't that uh, concerned to dig in, but you know, he was a producer was his whole shtick. He really wasn't anything else, um, and his big thing was he was on television, and he had produced this soap opera, Dark Shadows. And again, we're not going to get into it too much, but originally it was more – uh, it, it was not your standard soap opera. It's certainly not what you're thinking of nowadays. But it was more like a Rebecca sort of a thing, you know. Daphne Du Maurier, uh, Alfred Hitchcock did the film for it. Uh, that sort of a uh, gothic fiction in the sense of like you know Anne Radcliffe uh, or even Jane Eyre, you know that, that sort of a thing. Um, Jamaica Inn, you know, if those of you who know Hitchcock as well. Um, that sort of a vein where this governess goes up to this house and the family's got mysterious secrets and sometimes they're nice to her and sometimes they're cruel to her and you know the whole thing was just filling this out. And the weirdest things got, which again was very gothic fiction, was they had a ghost involved, which you know turned out to be this thing, the, the phoenix. You know, it's a long story. We'll get into it some other time. But uh, the ratings. Surprisingly, considering it's it's actually was pretty good. I really did enjoy the early black and whites, which were the last things to be released when they put them all out on VHS and then on DVD as well. Uh, they kind of waited towards the end because everybody wanted to see the Barnabas stuff, and that's what happened. Uh, he the, the ratings were tanking, uh, so his you know people that were behind them says, hey, you know the, the station or whatever, I guess it was on ABC, uh, said you got to do something here or you're going to be off air. So yeah, and it was kind of like the Stan Lee story, where he's like talking to his wife, and she's like, "Why don't you just you know do the stuff you always wanted to do and screw it? Because you you, you know the title's getting canceled anyway. You're basically gonna be out of a job. Do what you want to do first." And he did, and it was a huge hit. Uh, so he started throwing in vampires, and then later on there was other things, Frankenstein, werewolves. Uh, they went into the turn of the screw kind of a thing, uh, ghosts, parallel time. It, it just got crazy. Uh, and the crazier it got, at least for a couple of years, the bigger it got, and it became this huge social phenomenon. Um, there were records, very bad records produced about it, you know, like fan records. I had one of those. Did I you? Cause I, yeah, I got some you know, years ago off online, and funny shit. Uh, you know, there were contests, you know, people like, oh, yes, I'm going to win a beauty contest so I can go and, you know, be Mrs. Barnabas or some crap. Of course, you know, Jonathan Free was gay, so it was kind of silly. But, you know, nonetheless, uh, it was that big of a phenomenon. And people, you'd always hear stories about people going and, um, you know, college professors, okay, don't bother me at 3 o'clock because that's, i got to watch Dark Shadows, you know, come back later. Uh, and that yeah, that's yeah, how. Yeah, it was 4.30. I think it was 4.30 here for uh, but yeah, I mean it was a huge phenomenon, and what do you call it? Sorry. Uh, basically, the show went on for about five years, I think, uh, and it finally went off air. Yeah, they kind of ran out of ideas. He lost a lot of directors. Uh, they had cycled through, even though they had a lot of favorite actors. They kind of cycled through them. Um, and, you know, I won't say the people towards the end were lesser, but, you know, it was a different new crowd. They were younger. Uh, they were more inclined to – I mean, it was always about overacting. That show's unbelievable. Uh, but, you know, you, you'll notice that there is a difference. You know, when you get to the end of the episodes, it's like, all right, I think I'm still enjoying this, but it's not the same anymore. And they're just kind of repeating themselves over and over and over again. So basically – uh, I think Curtis himself said, you know what, screw this, let's just cut it. And 
the show went off the year in, in 1971, I think it was. It was on since uh, yes. 66, I think. Uh, and what he did was, you know, actually while the show was still on air, he says, you know what, this is really popular. Let's go and take this to theatrical. And he got backing for that. And, you know, they were out on like – I know MGM put it out on like, you know, VHS DVD. So I don't know if that was the original company, but nonetheless, he got yeah, back. And, Which uh, is really interesting because ABC, it was on ABC, mm-hmm. you know, the ABC network. And uh, it's odd that ABC, which actually put money behind some pictures, were not uh, American Broadcasting Company at the time. Uh, were not uh, the people that uh, he went to, he went to, well, whoever he went to, MGM were the ones that gave him the money. So right. we're going to skip the other ones and go right to Dark Shadows because we're talking about it. Yeah, uh, basically, he only did one before the Dark Shadows. That's why I went right to Dark Shadows. Uh, in '68, okay. the show was still right. really in its heyday. Uh, you know, and it really picked up. You had the whole Barnabas thing going on. I think they had gone back into the past once, introduced the whole backstory with Angelique, and it was a huge, huge. It was like the hottest time for the show, really. Uh, and he did a television movie during this time uh, with, with Jack Palance. And uh, a couple of British character actors, you know, Denim Elliott, Leo Genn. Um, he did Robert Louis Stevenson's Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I know when we had this, mentioned this earlier, we were talking about Palance movies or Dracula movies or something. You had said that you didn't care for this one. I actually like it. I, I found it to be um, – it's kind of like a shot on video, so it's got that sort of a, a 70s BBC television yeah. feel. Uh it felt authentic to the period in a lot of ways. I mean, there's these smoky, dusty pubs with, you know, like skanky, scary-looking old hookers and with old sores in their faces and everything. Um, it was, you know, it was. I I recall it being very creepy. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, so I guess, I guess in a way he achieved something. I'm not sure what he was going for with this. It, supposedly, I did some research on this. Uh, video teleplay and supposedly they, they went as close as they could as far as the dialogue goes to the Robert Louis Stevenson uh, story right um, I always remembered it being creepy and the Jack Palance or Palance depending on however you do it um, how he says it <laughs> he changed it by the week <laughs> yeah the makeup for him as Mr. Hyde was very unusual it was almost yeah. like uh, Dick Smith bladder effects and uh, he's just very, very creepy. And he was very aggressive. And it was, he was almost, you know, the thing, I think the reason why I didn't like it, maybe because it was effective, because I saw it when I was a kid, yeah. seven, eight years old. And uh, what the hell is this thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I actually liked his performance in it, even beyond the you know, odd makeup and the uh, the the atmosphere and the the period authenticity or the feeling of authenticity uh, because he was so completely aggro. And I mean, the guy really went for the throat. He was pulling at Klaus Kinski level or, or maybe Oliver Reed level more appropriately uh, performance Mm -hmm. here, which is not something that Pounce does. I mean, I've seen him too many things. He's, he does intense, but he's always almost got tongue in cheek. Not quite. But it's it doesn't have that 
it's kind of like what American actors uh, lack that European actors tend to have, which is the feeling of gravitas, the feeling that they're really into this and not looking at it askance like, oh, this is a role, let me camp it up. Uh, you know, he really threw himself into it. And he was really, you know, nasty with the ladies when he was Hyde. Uh, and, you know, he it's, it's Jack Palance. He's not a fantastic actor. But, uh, you know, you could believe that he was pained as Dr. Jekyll. I enjoyed it. I really think it was one of the better of his adaptations. And I enjoyed it more than the Jack Palance Dracula, which we'll get to shortly, uh, which was also Dan Curtis. Um, so anything else you want to say on this one? Uh, about Doctor Jekyll and uh, Mister Hyde. Yeah, I. It's very. It's 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 one of the. Well, it's it's funny because I think this is gonna pop up a couple of times tonight. For some reason, a lot of the Dan Curtis directed movies are like obscure now. I don't know why they're so hard to find. Uh, I. Uh, the only reason why the Dark Shadows have suddenly come out in recent years is because, you know. Years, and we're talking decades after the show, the TV show went off the air, did suddenly this groundswell appear and there were conventions. I mean, you know, unlike Star Trek, when Star Trek, the original show, went off the air, there were conventions immediately. With Dark Shadows, uh, well, not immediately with Star Trek, like a year or two later, but with Dark Shadows, it was like decades later, and then there were conventions. And that's, I think it was that groundswell that actually pumped the, like, I think originally they were Laserdisc versions right. of the two movies. <coughs> Pardon me. But, um, you know, aside from the Night Stalker stuff, it's really hard to find that kind of stuff. So who knows where you could find it. I know I saw this on VHS, the Dr. Jekyll. I have a set. They actually did put them out in singles and pairs, and I have a set of a DVD set that has not all of them, but several of the horror ones. And then you got other ones uh, in pairs, like I mentioned. Uh, so it does exist. It is out there. It's just you know uh, how easy it's it is to find right now. I have no yeah. idea. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, so after this, you know, you're still doing Dark Shadows. They're still going big, and he does the House of Dark Shadows movie, which was the first one. And it was strange because right, I right. think the idea of this, I, I think his uh, original thoughts were, oh, yeah, uh, let's do what we can't do on television. Let's make it you know, gory or let's make it whatever. Yeah. And I don't know that it works. It's a strange – it's a strange film. Uh, sorry. It's a shocker. Uh, Shocking, yeah, actually, I always thought it was shocking. Yeah, it doesn't feel Dark Shadows at all. It feels like I don't know something else. What are you going to call it? Um, yeah, not Hammer-esque either. It's something very weird about this movie. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know how much I like it or not. And some people got replaced in it. Uh, basically, like I said, it's it's more violent, which was his intention. Um, you've got a lot of the cast in there. It's not worth listing them all off, uh, but it's a tremendous degree of them. But there are people that are substituted that don't really belong. And it was written by one of the show's uh, head writers, Sam Hall, uh, who was also Grayson Hall's husband, which we'll get to when we talk about the uh, the actual show itself. But, you know, it is what it is. It has definite moments that are atmospheric and dark in a... Um, uh, what the hell was that one? The Warwick Quarry one that everybody loved at that time. Uh, oh, Count, Count Gorga. Gorga. 
it has like a Count Yorga feel to it. Yes, uh, it does. Um, it does. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah. And you know, for it, for that, it is successful. I definitely enjoyed it to that degree. Uh, just you know, it's not the same thing. People who are fans of Dark Shadows would probably not like this film, and people who like this film would probably be bored off their ass by Dark Shadows, or you know, shocked at how cheesy it was. Uh, so it's a very different animal, so to speak. Um, he did another one following on this. I guess he had oh, a two picture deal. But I want, I want to riff on this one a little bit. So I was I was ten when this came out, and and I remember <coughs> I w- we were in, I, we were in Ohio for some reason. Don't ask. I don't remember that much. And I was dropped off at a movie theater because you know they knew how much I liked Dark Shadows as a kid. That was my thing. I came home from school. I watched Dark Shadows. You know, and the vampires and all the shit. The hammer. Thing. Yeah. <coughs> And I was surprised because, number one, it was, I believe, at the time, uh, possibly rated M or GP, which was, you know, when they first do, first put out PG Rating. movies, they were GP. And then there were some films that were rated M for Mature. Right. There was no R in these days. And I, I was dropped off. And, the, like, the first thing I remember is, like, oh, this is like a big... Mario Bava type thing, you know, this is not, like, this is very strange. And <clears throat> I think one of the, there were a lot of shocking things in House of Dark Shows for me. One, they opened it up, they, you know, the, the, it really looks nice. Mm-hmm. But if you're used to Dark Shows and you're a fan and you're used to, like, banging on a door and seeing the wall fall down and shit like that, <laughs> this was different. And... Everybody was much more dramatic, and everybody was much more earnest. Where the show was campy, this was full on, we're going to fuck with you now, because there was uh, blood, there was yes. gore, <clears throat> there were, there, there were uh, di- uh, Catherine Lee Scott, I think, as Carolyn, she wore these diaphanous gowns, I was like, oh, look, there's breasts and nipples. This was not your ABC TV Dark Shadows, this was yeah. much different. And major uh, characters got killed off really fast. It did not follow the script of the TV series. It sort of looked like well, it no. did, but it doesn't. No, no, sort of look. Yeah, I was wondering, and you watched this, if you've never seen it before, let's say, folks, you're a fan of Dark Shadows again, which we'll cover later on, on another show, and you see this, and you're like, what? Because, yes, and, and then there's a climax, and... and, and and I, I really don't want to mention it because uh, it will mess with you. And it's just like, so what are they doing here? It's like, so, because the show was still on the air. Yes. When this came out. And uh, I think it did good business, of course. It has a lot of followers. You know, people are watching it on TV. You know, so I think it did good business. It didn't do, as Box Office Magazine, which I think is no longer in existence anymore, it used to say, Bafo Business, which means like, you know, tremendous. And uh, so I think it did good business. It didn't do spectacular business. Yeah. Um, it's got a mind-blowing ending. It's a very strange movie. Hey, where it seems inside the gold. Exactly. It is. It's a very strange movie. It's 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 lit very well. It's photographed really well. I mean, I, I don't want to say hammer-esque. That's, that's you know, coining a phrase and I don't want to say Bava-esque, because it is colorful at times. But 
it, maybe maybe House of Dark Shadows gave us more a uh, deeper look into the psyche of of Dan Curtis. Yeah. Then 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 we usually and then this is more to come too, especially with the next picture. Yeah, this was a disturbing film. It had really nice locations, uh, and the thing about it was, I would say that the closest things you know, analyze for anybody who has not seen it is the Count Yorga films, possibly the related Deathmaster, also River Quarry, and also uh, Scream Blackula Scream, which is kind of also in the same vein. It's got that feel to it, that sort of early seventies, uh, grim. There's no hope. Uh, Vampires are involved, but it's not like cheesy, and they certainly don't fucking sparkle. Uh, there's nothing romantic about it. It's just, and that's another thing because the TV series played up the you know romantic angle with Barnabas and all the crap. No, 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 none of that. This is straight on uh, aggression. You know, Barnabas is scary in this movie, and people would not expect that. That are you know Dark Shadows fans. Uh, that's not the way he was on the TV series. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they made him that way, but usually he was like, "Oh, look, you know, he's the almost like uh, we're talking about the CW uh, superhero shows recently. He's like the angsty, like oh, he was the forerunner in a lot of ways to that asshole that plays Arrow. The <laughs> same idea. Uh, <laughs> so that's what people were expecting, and then they walk in and they get this guy who's ripping fucking throats out and killing major characters left and right, and basically by the end, I think everybody's dead. Uh, it, it's mind-boggling that this went on while the show was happening. I can only imagine it was traumatic. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Very well, yeah, very well said. I'm sure, very good. That's a very good point you have. I'm sure for the um, for the moms, especially of the children who are watching this, they took the kids. Now, you got to remember, this was like, a, a, again, GP or M. Yes. So they, they probably had to take the kids, get the kids in, except with different um, uh, I'm sure they were traumatized because you know a lot of a lot of those divorcees or stay-at-home moms they kind of like Jonathan Fritz riffing on Barnard Piscon. So what? He was urbane. He was possibly sensual. You know, if he doesn't always turn into gay back in those days, nobody figured it out. You know, right? So, uh, right? Yeah, it was just like, oh, he's just so he's so civilized. <laughs> and uh, urbane, <laughs> yes, 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 and I'm sure they were in there, and they're like, "What the hell's going on with the crossbows?" You know, <laughs> those those Norman Reedus fans is there's heavy use of crossbows in this movie, so you know. <laughs> but you know what? You know what? I I doing research for this show, I saw that in several places. That the, the supposedly Curtis wanted to follow this up with a sequel, right. bringing back Barnabas, and I'm just going to leave it at that, bringing back Barnabas. Supposedly, some places I read that Fred did not want to get typecast. Hello? You know, you just did this for six years. You're making one movie, another movie. What's the big deal? And then the other one I read was, well, the show was off the air, which is probably, I'm not quite sure what's going on. But the next picture is even stranger in its own yes. way. It's true. The, the next one, as you have mentioned, either the show was off the air, which it may have been, or it was winding down because it was 71. Uh, I get the impression it had just gone off air. 
Uh, And they had been through some really strange shit at that point. Uh, You know, not only parallel times and back and forth to the future and God knows what else, but, I mean, it got so convoluted that you have to be a brain surgeon to follow the path. It's really difficult to follow these plot lines of uh, Dark Shadows, more so than any other soap opera that's out there. Uh, But, of course, that's part of the fun of it. But uh, at this point... They made this film that was really strange. And for years, uh, I have to admit, I actually liked this one better than the first one. Nowadays, I've changed my opinion. I prefer the atmosphere and the aggression and the just all-out strangeness, the subversion of uh, House of Dark Shadows. But for decades, I always thought that people were crazy saying, oh, this movie sucks because I like this one much better. Um, it's more intimate, which is one of the reasons I like it. Uh, it's got more of a almost Euro horror feel to it, which is another reason yeah. I like it. Um, like a Barbara Steele movie, right? Almost. Yeah. yeah, but not even that. I'm even thinking more like you know, Filmarage, you know, the Joe D'Amato stuff in this, uh, and, and his company from the 80s. I mean, it's a very strange, intimate little, uh, you know, kind of like Demons 3, the Ogre sort of feel to it. Uh, basically... You've only got a couple of people still carried over from the show. Um, let's see who was in this one. Uh, Dave Selby was in it, who was Quentin. He was the, the guy that they were grooming to be the, uh, not replacement, but as people started to get a little tired of their Barnabas fixation and grow out of that, they gave him this new, somewhat tortured, but more decadent and devil may care. And you know what? I am the way I am, and I'm kind of proud of it. And screw you. Uh, that sort of a character. Um I liked him better for that reason as well, but he was kind of like the next big thing, and he had played a bigger part towards the end of the series. So they brought him in as the lead. They kept some people like you know Grayson Hall's in it, John Collins in it, Nancy Barrett who was um, Carolyn is in it, uh, Lara Parker who was Angelique's in it, uh, Diana Malay, Christopher Pennock, Thayer David, Clarice Blackburn, the old bitch from uh, <laughs> used to be the maid all the time. She was horrible, um, but. It was strange because, like I said, Kay Jackson, she came in towards the end, and I don't know what they were trying to do with her on the TV series. We won't get too much into that, but it was very strange. I I don't think they made up their mind whether they were trying to find the umpteenth Vicky Winters substitute or if she was just too completely different. I mean, she was kind of a pretty uh, long-haired Texan gal, uh, and... You know, she had more of an urbane, uh, earthy set. Earthy is probably the best word. Uh, feel to her than any of the other people that they tried to stick in that role previously, uh, which included Catherine Lee Scott for one. Um, so I don't know what they knew what the hell to do with her. And here she comes as basically the second lead in this damn thing. And it turns out that instead of being a vampire story or you know a werewolf story or whatever, they say, all right, well, you know what? There's a lot of ghost stories in Dark Shadows. So they did a ghost story. And it turns out to be one of these uh, – kind of like we were talking about that film the other week, uh, the one in Japan with um, an aging uh, Susan George – uh, what the hell's the name of that? Oh, thing? House Where Evil Dwells. Yeah. Yes, that's it. It's like a House Where Evil Dwells kind of a thing where he goes there. He's like an artist or a painter or some crap, and all of a sudden, he, you know, he can't really do his stuff anymore. He's got his basically you know, proto yuppie friends, which is Carlin and Barrett. Uh, they come around and visit. They're kind of like hanging out at the cottage more or less over the summer. Uh, and you know, I guess the cottage was his inheritance or some crap, and. 
instead of going back and doing his art or whatever, because I guess he's bound up or whatever the deal is, you know, he's got a writer's block or artist block or whatever, he winds up just exploring the place and finds this old attic, and it turns out that he ends up falling in love with uh, the ghost of one of his ancestors and basically ends up reliving history all over again. And people die, and it, it's it's a strange, sort of gothic, but really, again, very dark um, it, it it plays into the same milieu, but it's not as boring as uh, the later Burnt Offerings, also by Curtis. Uh, I mm-hmm. always really liked this one. I liked the feel of it. It's got, it, especially with the tower thing and the uh, fatality of it, it's got that feel of like a bell from hell. Uh, that's sort of a, um, not aesthetic, but this, that, that's sort of a moribund, there's no friggin' way out, uh, but slow and peaceful while you're going there, kind of a feel to it. Um, you know, again, nowadays, because I rediscovered the other one, uh, I may prefer that one. Uh, maybe I've seen it too many times, let's put it that way. Uh, but for decades, I always thought this was the better film, and I was shocked that people, uh, fans and stuff, always said, oh, no, this one's terrible. It's nothing like the series, which, yeah, it really isn't in a lot of ways. It certainly doesn't involve Barnabas and vampires and stuff like that. Uh, but in a lot of ways, I think it's a better film. Uh, it, it's The problem is, too, it was hastily edited. I'm not sure what happened there. And it would be nice if somebody actually found that missing footage and you know put it together like a director's cut or something. Of course, Dan Curtis is long dead. Uh, but... As it is, there are elements that seem somewhat out of place, and it seems like the narrative doesn't always flow as well as it could. But that also kind of plays into the nightmare logic of it, and that's also what works in a lot of ways. So, you know, mixed feelings about it. I always liked it better. I do think it's much better than its reputation. Uh, but, you know, what's your take on this one? Um, this, uh, again, it's a, it's a, another unusual film uh, from someone who uh, again if you're watching Dark Shadows as a soap opera <laughs> gothic soap <laughs> opera whatever we're going to call it in, in retrospect yeah then you see the other you know, the other picture and then you see this one and this one was odder I, yep. I I think a lot of things MGM didn't know what to do with this picture I think he you know allegedly he turned it in a 130 minute movie and they forced him to cut out, cut it down to ninety-five minutes. I think some places it may have been less. Um, yeah. They really did not know what to do with this. I recall MGM seventy-one. Uh, we're talking post Manson now, and we're talking like a whole different kind of world. And yep. I remember that really trying to promote this as a, a sexy, sleazy horror movie that it wasn't. Yep. Um, but that being said, it wa- it did have eroticism that the show did not have. It did have this tonality to it that that you know it's funny. You mentioned uh, the, um, Demons the Ogre or whatever it's called, Demons Three. A lot of uh, late period uh, Lamberto Bava pictures actually remind me of this movie. Yeah, he definitely. He definitely has the feel for that and. Um, and I so thought that they came out through Filmorage. That's why I mentioned that as like being one of those yeah. sort of Filmorage films. That that's the feel it's got. That Eurohorror thing. 
Yeah, yeah. You remember I said before about, you know, I was kidding about, well, they, they did have diaphanous gowns because, you know, they were shooting for, for House of Dark Shadows. They were shooting for, they they were doing things they could not do on TV. So with the right. nudity, they didn't want to go full bared breast, bared breast. But here in this picture, there was, it definitely had a, not only an air of morbidity, it had this, ooh, I'm on the mold me. It had this just <laughs> thick air of eroticism as well. You know, because yeah. he's in love with the ghost, but he starts to lose his mind. And, you know, it's very interesting. And you're right about, uh, you touched upon something a moment ago. You're right about, yeah, you know, if it truly is missing all this footage, that sure makes sense for a lot of stuff. Supposedly, and I read this recently, that some of that missing footage also includes the original ending. It didn't end the way it yes. does now. Exactly. That's, That's what we've all heard anyway. In a more positive Hollywood manner, I guess as conceived, um, I guess if you cut it down, you cut it down, you cut it down, you, there's no way they're going to do it. So actually, this did not do too well in the theaters, and I remember no. it being bottom billed after a while. You know, like, you know, because folks back in this time, the early 70s, you went to the movies, there were two movies playing. There was no way around it. Very rarely was there only a single movie, unless it was like a big Cinerama release or something. It was always, almost always two movies. And uh, this was the bottom bill picture pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. But, like you yeah. mentioned, I think that's another thing that I gravitated towards, not just the gothicism of it, in the true sense, you know, in the sense of being like a gothic novel, uh, but also mm. in the sense of its eroticism. I definitely must have picked up on that because, you know, obviously that's my nature. But, uh, you know, I always really, really liked this film. And, you know, again, having just rediscovered the other one after decades of thinking, oh, God, House of Dark Souls sucks ass. I don't know why everybody loves it so much. Uh, it's just a bad retread of what happened in the series. And then rediscovering and saying, oh, okay, I can see why this is different and in some ways. Not better, not worse. It's just very different. It's a different take on Dark yeah, Shadows itself. Uh, you know, now having recently come to this, I'm talking about like you know two years ago, more or less, or maybe three years ago. Uh, right. Therefore, my 25, 30 year love of Night of Dark Shadows pales a little bit because it's like, oh, this is new. It's the newness of discovery or rediscovery, as, as the case is. Um, but yeah, I mean, I still think in a lot of ways it is the better film, uh, not for all its end results, but for what it's trying to be and for what you can. You know, evoke from it. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of illusions, and there's a lot of uh, things being hinted at under the surface that are like, whoa, okay. Uh, but again, you know, it's the early '70s now. We're not talking about the uh, you know, technically the ones only a year before, but it's still kind of the hangover from the '60s. This is the '70s. This is when things really kick off. This was the best period for a lot of things, but it's particularly for dark films, you know, cult films, horror films, whatever. Uh, and you can feel it all through this. It's just suffused with this darkness. Uh, I love this film. Um, and he's so also there... quite, you know. And he's uh, one other thing. He's also quite good in this, David Selby. You know, I, I read somewhere that this was like his feature film debut. Enough for so he did a good, fine job. Actually, for whatever reason, I think more so because of Dark Shadows, the series. He actually, for a while, for a short while, he got some A-list movies. He was in some really yeah. bizarre. Yeah, he's the one with Maud Adams that they put out on uh, Scorpion that I watched. Very strange. The Girl in Blue or something? What the hell is this all about? 
Very strange movie. But you, he was in the Super Cops. Ron Liebman. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> wow. And you know, free, if people remember Freebie and the Bean, which I think might be Richard Rush, uh, which is a weird movie, James Con Alan Arkin. There was a point they were trying to make these counterculture, counterculture movies featuring cops. Yes. As like the Boston. heroes <laughs> slash antiheroes. Yep. And that was one. And the Super Cops was the other one that was really actually wound up being popular for a while. And I think Gordon Parks, of all people, who did uh, black exploitation movies, he was a black filmmaker too, um, directed that one. And uh, that's a very strange movie, too. And it's like, you know, here's young, fresh-faced David Selby and Rod Lehman, who's done a lot of stage work, too. And they're they're thrust into this, like, you're a cops, but we're making a counterculture cop movie. And that was like probably two years after this, in 73. Again, but his his tenure, his career, he did not do as well. You know, this is just, it's just, it's a long story. You know, like anybody who's done episodic TV and then go to movies, very few people have had success or lengthy yes. success or sustained success, actually sustained George Clooney, of all people, look at him. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely, it. I completely forgot he was on a fucking TV show. <laughs> I swear to God. Nowadays, I think it's changed a bit. The zeitgeist is different, yeah. and some of these TV actors can cross over at least for a bit. Uh, a couple of them actually do make it big. You know, look at Tom Hanks, for example. Uh, you remember Bosom Buddies? Yeah, but yeah, he's on Bosom Buddies. Remember that crap where he was in drag the whole time? Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would never have watched that. That was probably in my my hooligan days. No, yeah, that was back in the early eighties. Uh, but oh, there you go, there you go. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> my hooligan days were later. That was uh, a little young for me. Uh, <laughs> but you know, this was uh, it was a different thing at that time, and there was a. Deep, deep stigma. Like, oh, you were on TV? <sighs> okay, yeah, go get another job with the TV division. Leave me alone. Uh, it almost said that you were a second-rate actor. Uh, it, it might not have been true, but that's the impression. That's the feel. That's what was going around. Um, it was almost like working in porno and trying to cross over to mainstream. It was this exact same kind of you know, glass wall. Like, okay, yeah, you can do whatever you want on TV, but don't come over here. <laughs> You know, maybe you can do a cameo well, or something. You know? when, when, we, when we talk about a picture tonight, a little later on, the Norlis tapes. Yes. Well, uh, there, there's another person, too, that we'll, we'll discuss. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, those were his first two big movies, and his two theatricals. Really, he doesn't do any more theatricals. There were movies that I thought were, like The Night Stalker and Ice Strangle, but they're really all TV movies for a, a good yes. decade. Um, yeah. as big as they got, and as much as you might think, as you know, they had DVD releases, and you know, people always say, "Oh, yeah, this was a real movie." No, it was a TV movie. Uh, so this becomes his niche for the rest of the decade. Uh, a lot of times now, instead of working with people like Sam Hall, uh, who he had worked with in Dark Shadows, and you know, using those Robert Colbert cues, although he continues to use them throughout the decade, you're going to hear Dark Shadows cues in just whatever freaking movie he makes, uh, which is funny, uh, but. He starts working a lot with Richard Matheson, who was – I don't know if he was big at the time, but he was a noted horror author. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he had written for uh, Twilight Zone. Yeah. And uh, this uh, was, night, the Night Gallery. 
Yes. Right, exactly. And this was really where he shined. I mean, uh, both of them, really. I mean, Dan Curtis as well. But there was some amazing shit. And nine times out of ten, when I'm thinking, because there's a, a cult out there, and I'm one of them, that just loves all those movies we grew up on in the 70s, those TV movies. They'd show them on, like, you know, the ABC afternoon movie or whatever the hell. Uh, you know, things like Crowhaven Farm or Don't Be Afraid of the Dark or, you know, uh, oh, Spectre. Uh, you know, really good stuff, scary shit, The Devil's Daughter, um, one after the other. And basically, when it came time, I went back and tried to find some of these things, the ones that actually did bother to cross over to DVD, some of them in like public domain, cheapy things where you got like 20 in a set. But nonetheless, uh, the ones that were out there and able to get, a lot of them were like, oh shit, there's Dan Curtis again. Oh, and it's Richard Matheson with him. Yep, Dan Curtis and Richard Matheson. Oh, wait, is this Dan Curtis and Richard Matheson? There it is again. So that's how it ended up becoming. That's actually how we got the idea for the show eventually, because I just love these things. There's so many of them that I've seen and enjoyed. I'm sure there's more as well, but. Uh, so I don't know that he was on this, but I think he was. Uh, the Night Stalker. And eventually people will probably know that it became a TV series, which I loved, but I know you have complaints about uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker. Uh, but he wasn't really involved with that. Uh, originally, the, the only things that were there was the movie itself, uh, which was from 72, and then it did so well that they did a sequel, The Night Strangler, in 73. Basically, uh, those of you who have never seen the series uh, or these movies, uh, Darren McGavin, who was kind of a... a Bit player, uh, he was always kind of almost like a dirty dozen sort of thing. He'd be like one of the guys in the cast, and he might have a couple of lines, and he'd be snarky or whatever. But he never really. Oh, uh, no, wait, wait. But but Darren Darren did a lot of stage work. Darren did a lot of stage work, and he was he was uh, he was known for that. Um, I think he would do maybe Tennessee Williams or View from the Bridge. He did that in Broadway for a long time. But as far as as, as uh, stuff goes, he was yeah he was the, I guess the character actor guy. Exactly. Like, remember our often talked about Mission Impossible box set. Yes. <laughs> like, like in the early sixties, Darren must have been the villain in fourteen episodes in, the, in yes. like eight years of that. Do you, you know what I'm talking about, right? I do. I know exactly what you're talking about. In uh, yeah, one episode, he was Blaycheck, and another one, he was Vostok. You know, like. <laughs> Uh, you know, and he would just turn up over. He was kind of like, uh, who was the other fellow that we mentioned when we talked about the TV Spider-Man? Michael Pataki. He was like a Michael Pataki, yeah. but early. Uh, same idea. Uh, you know, he was always likable, but he never really distinguished himself beyond being basically a character. I guess like a, a American Michael Ripper. Uh, you know, obviously a lot different personality, different persona. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's sort Probably. of a level, I think. Yeah, maybe if that's what you think. I, I just I, I don't think that we're really touching upon what he his gravitas was as, as a performer. But whatever the case is, this was like this was it for him. This was like bang, all of a sudden this was like, Holy shit, this guy, whoever he is, is freaking fantastic in this part. Right, exactly. Uh, this was his I, part. I'm sorry, oh, I, I didn't want to blast you off on this, but it was no, just no. like I remember seeing this and thinking, "Wow, this guy is is good, and this this role is his." Exactly. You know, I, I, yeah, it's like it doesn't matter whatever he did before or after. It's like, bang! Who is, 
it, you're starting to think, who is this guy? Why, why? Oh, I did see him before. And it's funny, like you forget, and then you watch a couple of Mission Impossible's, for example. <laughs> and it's like, oh, there he is. You know, um, but um, but yeah, this he, that, this this definitely is the yeah. role he distinguished himself and made his own. There's no question. And he's got this snarkiness and charm. Kind of like this hard scrabble, uh, almost like Peter Falk's Columbo sort of a feel, but not as dirty and not as oversmoked. He doesn't seem like – Peter Falk always seemed like the kind of guy you'd see coming out of a 42nd Street Pete show, and you know he just like you know jerked off on all over the walls or whatever. Uh, <laughs> this Darren Kev was not there. He was the kind of guy that was like – uh, you know, when John Belushi did that movie, uh, Continental Divide, where he was the uh, Chicago reporter that was like the crime beat, he's like one of those. He's like a crime beat reporter, and that's basically what he winds up being here. Uh, he's cast as uh, an investigative reporter who keeps winding up on the weird cases beats. Uh, and, of course, the, the boss always chews him out. Uh, Simon Oakland, the, he also made this was kind of his uh, defining role as well. Uh, you had yeah, people that uh, were – okay. Right. He was another guy. Simon Oakland was another guy that, uh, I mean, not as well known. He, he And probably not as familiar a face. I remember Simon Oakland because he had a particular look. Yes. If he was born several decades earlier, he would have been in some of your beloved gangster films. The 30s, oh, yeah, he would have filmed Noir Star for sure. No question. Yeah, film Noir um, Star. Yeah, he had that great look. But because he was born a little later, um, and probably, like, you know, did did his wood chopping on the stage, he probably didn't do TV until later on, and um, so this, again, you know, he, he actually had a couple of things after this that he popped up in, but, yes. uh, yeah, the guy popped up, Night Stalker, again, another perfect casting, it's a funny thing, the Night Stalker has, like, perfect fucking casting, except yes. for two parts. Yeah, well, <laughs> Carol Lindley shows up in this thing, which is like, what? Really? That's uh, one of the parts. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, Ralph Meeker's in it. Claude Aikens shows up in it. I thought he was fine in this I one, though. He's fine. He's fine. Yeah. yeah. Ralph Meeker and Ralph Jr. The, the little creepy well, guy who always pops up in all these things like you know, House on the Haunted Hill. Elisha Cook Jr. is in this damn thing. Uh, Larry Linville from friggin' MASH is in here. Uh, you know, it's... It's a strange. always took me out of it because, yeah. like, all right, Kochak is bang is Kochak is banging flower girls. That's cool, yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what he's doing, right? Yep. And she's like, you know, you could see her like, give me a little joy, I want a hit, you know? Okay, and she probably was doing hits, uh, you know, you know, mm -hmm. in between shots. But Carol Lindley is badly miscast in this, and um, but that being said, there was another role that's. Uh, which one I stood thought out Claude Aikens was okay. I thought I thought that. Well, Ralph this is the Meeker sort of thing he usually does, but it worked enough. But Ralph Meeker, yeah, maybe. True. I wasn't sure what they were doing with the Ralph Meeker role. Uh, yeah. You know, we're trying we're trying to dance around without giving, and I'm sure there are probably people who have not seen this. So, one of our things, one of our edicts when we do this show is that. Unless we're doing like a really popular director and we're discussing like Argento or Diamato, we're discussing one of the lesser films. Like we we tend to occasionally throw in a little a little something about the plot. Otherwise, you have no idea yeah. what the hell we're talking about. 
<laughs> Night Stalker, there's probably a few people who may not have seen it, so we're trying really not to tell you too much about it. Yeah. You know, it's a seedy, rundown reporter. He's on the edge. He's burnt out, extra crispy. And it might be a vampire at large, may or may not be. Yeah, because so there's serial in, killings going on. He's investigating serial killings, right. basically. It's like Manson murders, right. more or less. But, you know, mm-hmm. he gets the hint that there may be something supernatural to this. So, you know, is it a vampire? Who knows? And it just gets weirder from there. And again, very dark, dark film. Uh, it takes what he was doing, Curtis, I'm talking, in House of Dark Shadows and Night of Dark Shadows and ramps it up and takes it right into the mid-70s. I mean, it's early 70s still, but it's got that dark, fatalistic feel. And Kolchak is a true anti-hero because he is the kind of guy that you know he can't fucking win. There is no way he's going to win. But he's also never going to like get down on his knees and die. He's always going to fight to the end just because – and not because he's such a great guy, not because he's trying to save the world. It's just because he's there, and that's you – know, it's like, well, I'm not going down without taking you down with me, and I can't sit, sit here and watch as you kill all these fucking people. So effectively, right. he becomes the hero, but he's not a hero by any means. He's just kind of a schlubby reporter that's always down on his luck and never gets credit for what he discovers. He can't publish his stories. Uh, they kind of get relegated to the you know the junk column. You know, here's the fiction section. Uh, his editor hates his guts, but then again, other times he'll support him. It's back and forth. They have a very abrasive, you know, uh, relationship. They grind against each other a lot. Uh, he's never really has that much luck with the ladies, or if he does, then you know they're going to die at some point. Um, you know, he bounces from town to town like the Incredible Hulk TV series because he's always kind of getting <laughs> thrown out. You know, uh, he's a really dark. Hero, which said a lot about the 70s and where things were going after Vietnam, after Altamont, and after Manson, and eventually, we didn't get there yet even, but after Watergate, uh, this is where people's minds were at. There was no such thing as you know the superhero, the, the Chuck Norris and the Charlie Bronson all this horse shit. No, no, this was like this is the everyday schlub who he's like down on his luck all the fucking time, and things are not going to work out for him, and yet. He's not going to give in. So, it really, really uh, and, and if, yeah, yeah, I really like this movie, of course. And 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 if I'm you, you mentioned something. This is pre Watergate, and one of the great things about the Richard Matheson story, which is from the uh, the Jeff Rice uh, book. Jeff Rice was a writer, okay writer. He wrote a bunch of stories about things, and the uh, Kolchak was the uh, the figure in a couple of them. But uh, one. You, Again, Watergate, you mentioned pre-Watergate, and um, the thing is the distrust of the law. See, now, yeah. Kolchak goes, goes, he tries to do the right thing at some point, where he realized he can't defeat, he can't fight what's going on once he figures out, oh, this might be what's going on. And they're like, we don't want to hear about it. We're taking care yeah. of it. And right away, he gets he gets agitated. It's like, well, what do you mean? So-and-so just showed up there. We're taking care of it. Go away, or we're going to pull your license to whatever it is you do. Yep. And there, there's there's a really telling toward the very end of the film. Uh, one of Ralph Meeker's better role, better later roles, I might add, too. Ralph Meeker's a guy who's in uh, Kiss Me Deadly, the great, great, Great fucking movie by Robert Aldrich. Yep. Uh, great movie. If we ever tackle that, man, I got a lot to say about that film. <laughs> but his later in his career, 
and Ralph Meeker. There's a great scene later on. They're in they're in like a pseudo courtroom, and it's a small town cops, and and the, I guess Ralph Meeker's representing maybe local FBI guys. He's like, sorry, call. I can't help you. Yeah. You now it's like that pre Watergate thing infests this movie because it's it's kind of a um it's kind of telling what is what is what starts happening with our our local governments and our politics. It's like they you know, we're not gonna tell you what's going on because you know what? You don't need to know. Yeah. And that's actually one of the things that always resonated with me about this because it's true to life. This is what goes yeah. on. You know, you can't trust the fucking cops. You can't trust the government authorities. You can't trust somebody else to help you out, even though you're in the right. You know what's going on. You show them the evidence. They don't want to hear it, and they'll probably slap you in jail or you know, screw you over for, for telling them because right. they don't want to know. They just bury it under a rug somewhere. And that's the whole zeitgeist of not just the two movies here, but eventually the series. The series is, becomes a little bit lighter, and I think that's what you're saying that it fails about it, because they're not as dark and hard-hitting as these two films, even though they were telefilms. Uh, but mm. that is the whole point of the Night Stalker, the entire the character, the movies, the series. Uh, it really, really works, and it really resonates. Um, as I mentioned, there was a sequel to this, which was obviously they weren't going to do the exact same thing. So now, like I said, he got booted out of, I think it was in Vegas the first time. Now he's in Seattle. Um, he, The editor is up there now doing the paper because he also got booted out of town, I guess. Uh, and he puts him on this another case where a bunch of strippers are getting killed. Uh and also drain the blood. It was like, oh, is it a vampire thing again? But no, it gets a lot more twisted than that. And I actually think in a lot of ways, as much as I love The Night Stalker, once again, the second film was better. Uh, I really liked this whole thing because he discovers, you know, those of you who don't know, San Francisco is kind of like London. Uh, when London burned down, they built over the top of it, or Italy did the same thing, you know, building over old cities. San Francisco, during one of the earthquakes that they had around the turn of the century, uh, they just built over the top of it. So technically, there is an old San Francisco underneath the streets. You, you know, presumably, you can access this somehow through you know the sewers and access tunnels. Oh, Seattle, Seattle, you mean Seattle? Right? Uh, no, San Francisco. Uh, oh, okay. At least I oh, really? So. It was there. Yeah. So. Um, Underneath, I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but I, I thought it was San Francisco at that point. Um, okay. Yeah, I thought he went from Seattle down to San Francisco, but who knows? <clears throat> it's been years. My memory might be off. But this is the, this is true about San Francisco. I know that under the earthquake, there is – the city is buried underneath. Uh, you know, it's probably all just you know rubble and whatever. It's a ghost town and probably barred to the public. You know, you not got like people wander around down there and whatever, smoke crack and kill people or something. But nonetheless, <laughs> it exists. Uh, <laughs> you know uh, – but this is what happens. He winds up going down there and discovering this. And of course, you know, being a TV movie, everything's still standing like it was back in you know the 1880s or whatever the hell. And you know, I don't want to give any more of the plot away, but it that just fascinated the hell out of me. And the whole sequence where he is down there in old San Francisco uh, is amazing. Uh, it, not just in terms of set design, but in terms of the concept. And this is like. Oh my God! You're in a completely different world. Nobody can help you. Nobody knows you're even there. Uh, nobody knows this place exists. How the fuck are you going to get out of this? How are you going to solve this? And you know that's where the film ends up going. Yeah, again, people don't like this one as much as the first one. What their arguments are, I don't know. What, what's your take on this one? 
Oh, I, well, I, one thing is I think it's definitely Seattle, but, but I think you're absolutely right about, about San Francisco because of the earthquakes, uh, especially the 1902 one. So, but I think this takes place in Seattle. I think he goes up to Seattle. Right. But in any case, that being said, uh, no, I, I, I liked it a lot. It's actually, you know, the other one was a vampire. This is something else. And, yes. um, uh Yeah, we don't want to really give it away. Because Let me put him for one second. Collab- I wanted to yes. say one thing, so hold your thought. Uh, well, I didn't mention the cast because the cast changes, and I think in some ways, not all of it, but some of the cast is superior to the first one because Joanne Flug, who was kind of a regular in that uh, time period, uh, shows up yeah. as effectively his girlfriend this time around. And, yeah, she's certainly no Carol Lindley in terms of looks, but she's also not Carol Lindley in terms of acting. So, therefore, you know, it's more believable. They they have a more believable dynamic between the two of them. Um you know, obviously Simon Oakland's there again, but who's in this? Listen, this strange cast. Friggin' Mr. Peepers, Wally Cox is there, right? Uh, Margaret Hamilton, the Wicked Witch of the West, is in this thing, right? Uh, and she's got like a bit part. It's basically comedy. You know, she's like a, a mean old librarian. Uh, you know, John Carradine's in it. Grandpa Al Lewis is in it. Uh, the Bionic Woman and Six Million Dollar Man's Richard Anderson's in it. I mean, this is just like. It's such an improvement over the first one, and I love the first one. The first one was fantastic. It was one of the best TV films ever made, and yet I think this one's still better. So go ahead. Go back with your thought. It was it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you, know, you mentioned Joanne Flood, and with the strange last name beginning with a P followed by an F. Go figure that one out. <laughs> she, she, she always was strange because... Nobody was ever sure where her background was. I remember she was in this uh, Robert Downey Sr. She was in a couple of Robert Downey Sr. movies. Back when he was making counterculture films. Back in the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, he cast her because she was kind of black but kind of white. You know? And um, yeah. she that was a great Italian-esque. Yeah. A Sicilian, be, you know. But I... Yeah, no, it could be. She was dark like that. But she was in this great, uh, speaking of counterculture, it was great, great movie, Bo Bridges, uh, uh, called The Landlord, which is a movie I, I highly recommend. It's a real kind of fucked up New York kind of changing times movie from back in 1970. And she was the love interest there. And they, she, she was black in that, yeah, because she, she probably hit that Sicilian son. <laughs> but um, she was really enjoyable in this. She was really good. She was sprightly. She was kind of, uh, she was going at Kolchak for a little bit. She was, you know, they were bantering back and forth. And I thought she was a better foil as a girlfriend. Yes. For him. That's and it was saying. probably the last, the last good part she had before she became a Hollywood Squares regular. <laughs> no, there's game. another one. And it's also for Curtis and Matheson, but we'll get there. Uh, but you're oh, correct. She, she was. Too. Yeah, well, we'll get to that. It's, uh, what is it, Shower of the Wolf or Moon of the Wolf? Yeah. Uh, but, oh, yeah, I forgot she was she was that. <laughs> right. But nonetheless, you are correct. She was. What, yeah, no, the, what, the, the nice strength. It's really, I, yeah, it's really good. Uh, is it, do I think it's better than Night Stalker? No. I think it's, it's a good film. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on who, who's, who's making money off of it, um, the success of these things, you know, got the Night Stalker TV series going, uh, which is another whole thing in itself. Because I think 
Dan Curtis did not have as much involvement, supposedly, no. but had monetary involvement, which was like overseer or consultant. Yeah, I don't even and, include it in this because I don't think he was involved in it at all, really. Yeah. He probably just got creative consultant sort of uh, credits and money. I think you like this show more than I do. Yeah, I'm sure I do. The way I you have, guys talked about I have, it. I'm sure I do. <laughs> but 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 I do have them all. I have I have I have the box set somewhere. So yeah. Maybe so I'll look at it. After this, and you were correct by the way, uh, Joanne Flew. That's how I knew her originally when I was a child. Was always on fucking Match Game, and I think you were right about Hollywood Square. She was on a couple of game shows. The game show people kind of bounced around back then. Um, so. Next up, he did something called Shadow of Fear, which is more of a um, – basically, there's a woman. It, it's got like Manson elements to it, uh, or they're, they're hinting at that uh, because there's this woman who finds her house like wrecked, and there's all these like, you know, menacing words painted all over the walls. Um, and the guy, the husband, calls the cops, but he also calls – this guy who's like his, um, I don't know, he's like his head of security or something on the job, a uh, former cop, and things get kind of questionable. Again, we don't really want to give away plots here, but it's more of a, almost like a Brian Clemens thriller, like that series. Not as good as that, but that vein of, uh, you know, pseudo-realistic, um, more dr- thriller drama as opposed to horror drama, but in the same vein, you know, it's you can you can definitely call it a sort of a horror film, but it's more of a thriller. Uh, and Claude Akins is in it again. Tom Selleck's in the damn thing as the husband, uh, you know. But Matheson's not involved. Maybe that's probably why this is so uh, unusual. Um, so then he does. He starts doing the classics. He had already kind of adapted the classics with. Dark Shadows. Because he's okay, well, let's do Frankenstein. All right, let's do the werewolf. Okay, we already did Dracula. Let's do Turn of the Screw. Okay, let's do, you know, and he kept cycling through until he ran out, more or less. He said, well, let me try to take these things on, you know, for the real, you know, let's actually try to adapt these things like he had done earlier with Declan Hyde. So he does a whole bunch of these to differing degrees of success. Um, the 1973 Dracula. Which was actually directed by Curtis. Uh, he didn't direct too many of them, but he did direct this one. Uh, Jack Palance, like we mentioned earlier. Um, again, some British character actors: Simon Ward, Nigel Davenport, Virginia Wetherill, Sarah Douglas. I mean, these are people that some of them were popping up in Hammer films. Uh, some of them might have popped up in some Ken Russell films. I mean, that sort of a thing. Um, basically. I remember this being better than it was when I saw it as an adult when it came to DVD. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd seen it on TV when I was a child. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was really good. And then I saw it, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is the greatest one, the best adaptations. And I'm like, eh, it kind of sucks, and Jack Palance really sucks in it. <laughs> so, you know, it's not horrible. It's not bad. I mean, I've seen much worse, like the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's – or the just Franco Dracula. Um, but – you know, it's not anywhere near the same ballpark as the Louis Jordan Dracula or the much maligned but actually quite enjoyable uh, Frank Langella Dracula or the Bela Lugosi Dracula or the Christopher Lee horror Dracula. Uh, not even near them. God almighty. Well, yeah, it's better than that, but, you know, so is the turd uh, sitting in the sun and baking. Uh, but... <laughs> 
Uh, that thing was a piece of shit. But anyway, um, we addressed our gender. So my I think our very first week. Uh, yeah. Which one was it? Was yeah, I, well, you know what? I, I This movie is... I don't think it's as bad as that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no. My, my own personal opinion is I, I like... They, they actually try to, to do some of the... The historical thing, you know, by making him Vlad, there's some, some brief footage in there, but where he's leading hordes, you know. So they tried to mix up the thing. Before he was a vampire, he was actually Vlad Tepesh, which is like the historical stuff. You know, the Romanian account, whatever. Yeah, the thing yeah. is, when you mix historical accuracy, wow, you know, was it 14-whatever, with... A book written in the 1800s, you know, it's you know whatever. But a lot, a lot of movies have done that. I saw a Romanian Dracula that made for television actually did that too. It was actually similar to this. I don't think Jack Palance was really bad in it, nor miscast. I just think he he was kind of having angina in some episodes, some parts of it. He. uh he uh, he he seemed to not quite get a grasp of, or maybe it was Dan Curtis's fault on on how to play this part. Yeah. But I think he did fine. Uh, there was one, but there's some things to stick with you though. Where he he takes his long fingernail and just rips it across. This is before Langella did it. Yeah, rips it across the stomach and it bleeds, and the girl comes to lick the blood. Yeah, yep. That was. Erotic and strange because it's palance. Right. There's no, well, there's no magnetism. He wasn't a handsome yeah. guy. He's asexual. But at the, right. But at the same time, though, there was something about that that worked in a bizarre kind of fashion. And so not only that, like that, but women yeah. hated him because I remember uh, Laura Gemser talking about working with him on Black Cobra with Joe D'Amato, and they hated his fucking guts. And they weren't the only ones. I heard it from a lot of different people on different films. He was impossible. I mean, he came in and just kind of lorded it over. He would kind of uh, step on people's lines. He switched roles so they can get the bigger part. He would kind of like you know block people and upstage them on camera. And then he would steal costumes from the you know from the uh, whatever you call it the wardrobe. And then just leave. And, and that was it. He got his paycheck. I'm like, what the fuck? He's a real Jack Palance is an asshole. There's no two ways about it. Everything that I've ever read and everything I've heard about him, and he's no actor. I mean, he has moments like Jekyll and Hyde that are really effective, and then he has moments like this where it's like, really Dracula. Now the film itself has again the same atmosphere as you saw with Jekyll and Hyde. It's, it tries to be historically authentic. It's very you know BBC shot on video 70s television. It's got that sort of gravitas to it. They're they're trying to be somewhat true to the novel and the dialogue and the aesthetic, and it's all good in that respect. It's just he fucks it right up. So, yeah, if Jack Palance wasn't in it, it'd probably be a better film. <laughs> uh, uh, but you're I, right about that. I, I can't even do battle with you on this one. Let's go on to the next picture. <laughs> all right. So next, wow, this is really where he makes a mistake. You think he did a misstep so far? All right, Dracula, all right, I'll accept that. It is what it is. It has its fans. It certainly has a lot of fans. And there are definitely things that really, really work about it. Frankenstein, you can't say a good thing about this film. I'm sorry. It is horrible. 
Um, some guy named Glenn Jordan directs it. Uh, Robert Foxworth, who is like a TV actor, is in the damn thing. Uh, without his beard, he always had a beard. I remember. Uh, Susan Strasberg is in it. You know, this is this the daughter of the guy that invented the method, and I hate method acting. Uh, maybe that's just wrong with Palance. Maybe he's always doing method acting. Uh, um, but you know, she was always pretty, and I always kind of liked her. Doesn't really do anything in here other than just be pretty. Uh, Bo Svensson's in this, you know, his usual drunken phone and a performance job. Uh, John Carlin <laughs> from Dark Shadows is in this, you know, doing his usual, you know, what do you want to call it, over the top, neurotic, coked up, uh, you know, Willie Loomis type. And of all freaking people, who's in this? Willie Ames from like Charles in Charge. Like, seriously? Uh, <laughs> but yes, Willie Ames was in this Bible man himself um, as the child, you know, William Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I've seen a lot of bad Frankensteins. I never really cared for the story. Well, okay, I'll say this The Mary Shelley novel is fantastic. Anybody that out there that you know likes gothic horror, that likes decadent literature, that likes good literature per se, you know, turn of the century literature, get out there and check out Frankenstein if you have not read it. It's a fantastic book. But every movie that's ever been made on it, I mean, the best you got is James Wales, uh, the first one, and to some extent, because it's got elements that are decent, Son of Frankenstein. Every other one I've seen has been horrible, and this is probably one of the worst, at least until you get into like the shot on video era, you know, the '90s and beyond. Uh, but for the first, you know, whatever it is, four or five decades of film, this is the worst adaptation of Frankenstein ever made. Uh, I have well, nothing else to say about it. <laughs> well, it appeals to good. It appeals in comparison next to uh, one that came out around the same year, also made for TV. That was the one with Michael Sarazen, remember? Oh, is that the uh, and, the Per uh, Anderson one? The the uh, one from Sweden? Uh, Terror no, Frank no, this was also done for TV, and uh, it had Michael Sarazen, and I forgot who was popular at one time, and I forgot who the hell the other guy was in it, and uh, maybe Leonard Whitting from Romeo and Juliet, possible. Okay. And uh, I think that was on. But that was the thing. This was on uh, whatever this was, ABC or whatever, or CBS. Probably, yeah. And the other one was done for NBC. And at, at some point in time, I, so you're of age around this period. Yeah. They were doing dueling Frankenstein's, and they were all three to four hours long. So they were over three or four <laughs> four nights. And yeah. you're like, after after the first night, you know, if you didn't dig it, if it didn't grab you, like, fuck it, I'm not gonna watch anymore of this shit. <laughs> and, and and there was a like six months later there was another one like what's this? Yep. Oh, it's the same story, you know. There this was such a battle going on beyond yeah. between uh, not so much CBS they didn't care they were still at their top of the ratings but when there was three networks so CBS ABC and NBC ABC and yeah. NBC were at each other's fucking throats it was like a daily thing see who could one up each other they would steal shows from each other I mean we talked earlier about uh, Wonder Woman jumping networks between the two of them the Bionic Woman jump networks between the two of them uh, you know is. Or maybe the one was uh, Six Million Dollar Man was on one network and Richard Anderson jumped to the other one to do Bionic Woman. I forget what the story was, but constantly, constantly going at each other's throats, trying to get each other's ratings. They were like in a huge locked battle for number two, uh, and they were both more interesting. I never liked CBS. I didn't think they really had anything going on back then. But uh, the interesting stuff was always on the two of them, and they were like fight, fight, fight. Who's going to beat you this week? Oh wait, no, we're doing better. No, you're doing worse. 
Uh, yeah, so yeah, that that is true. They they definitely did. Do, and, uh, and, and both of them, and both of them played a game of who can shoot a movie for a lower budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think this one won. Oof. Uh, I mean, it's it's good for camp value if you want to see a really bad Frankenstein with John Collin freaking out and Bo Svensson and you know acting like a freaking idiot as the monster. Uh, Willie Ames, you know, as a kid, you know, it's hilarious in that respect. But in terms of is this watchable? Ooh. I mean, I guess if you're drunk, I mean, <laughs> it's it's bad. It's probably the worst thing Dan Curtis did, at least to this period. Um, so if there's nothing else to say, I'll, I'll move on to uh, the next one, which is the picture of Dorian Gray. Same year. Uh, these are all 73, basically. Um, same director, Len Jordan. <sighs> all right. Look, it's based on an Oscar Wilde novel. You've already got five steps up there. Because, uh, you know, Wilde is just – when I think of the great literary people of this century, you think William Shakespeare, and right after that, who's there? Oscar Wilde. I'm sorry. There's nobody else even compares. I know people talk George Bernard Shaw. I know people might even bring up somebody like, you know, Moliere, the great satirist, you know, with that kind of – no. It's those two. It's Shakespeare and Wilde. Nobody else had that command of language. Nobody else had that level of wit. Nobody else had that level of sophistication. Nobody else had that level of consistency, you know, where you could go back and you, you like this, so you're going to like everything else they did. Bingo. Uh, so right there, you've already got a huge step up. But was it a great film? I, I liked it, but it's imperfect. I remember being freaked out by the picture, uh, it, you know, especially as they did the big reveal at the end, and it was kind of rotting and everything. Uh, you know, I was pretty young at the time, but I was like, it totally freaked me out. It gave me nightmares. Uh, Shane Bryant's in this, who was kind of one of the last of the hammer, let's make this guy a star, but it's not working actors. Uh, and he's Dorian. That's one of the failings, actually. Well, you know, I could see him being the effete decadent. That's probably why they cast him, but... He doesn't work. He doesn't have the charm. He doesn't have the believability as someone women would throw themselves at, and men for that matter, uh, and vice versa. He just seemed kind of disinterested, like he was flouncing his way through on the way to, I don't know what, the drag bar or something. Uh, he, he just doesn't have the uh, Wildean feel to him in that respect. Uh, Nigel Davenport's in it, another British character. Vanessa Howard is in it. That's one thing that does work. I was so fucking hot for Vanessa Howard. I actually had a girlfriend that looked like Vanessa Howard, but, you know, with more weight on her, unfortunately. Uh, not that she was huge, but, you know. Um, she was <laughs> stuff like, no, seriously, she, she was. She was a cross between her and Linda Hayden, uh, but, you know, with, you know, more wow. off. Yeah, uh, she was, yeah. <laughs> it was the one before my wife. My wife knows who this is. Uh, but anyway, uh, where is she now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, she's married, but uh, and she's by trash. That's another story. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that was one of her problems. You, you have to go with the bad. But anyway, uh, Vanessa Howard. Those of you who are at the cult field, you probably know her best from things like Girly, uh, you know, which was Mumsy Nancy Girly and whatever hell it was originally, and Blood Beast Terror. Uh, very, very pretty. British girl, uh, blonde, big eyes, um, as and she was Sybil Vane, those of you who know the novel, um, the girl that he basically falls in love with and then is persuaded by the sinister Harry Watton to uh, ruin and to his own damnation, as it were. Uh, and John Carlin's in it as the um, – basically, I, I forget his uh, character name, but he's the guy that's trying to convince you know, Dorian, hey, wait, you don't really want to do this, do you? you know, trying to get him away from Watton's influence. 
Um, and he does a pretty good job. He's he's got that earnest thing going on where he's he's not freaking out. He's not pulling the woolly Loomis, uh, but he is earnest, and therefore it works. And, and you know that's also sort of a pun because you know, obviously uh, I, I'm thinking as soon as I say earnest with Oscar Wilde, I'm thinking importance of being earnest. But uh, literary joke there. So anything you want to say about this one? What do you think of this one? Uh, I haven't seen it in a couple of years. Uh, I remembered, uh, of all the ones I saw, it did not have a, uh, did not leave great, uh, stamp, uh, uh image on yeah. my mind. I, I kind of like the one, another weird one, uh, I think it was Helmut Berger, Richard Todd, you remember that, 1970, Oh, is that the, uh, the, the Italian one, um, yeah. Story yeah. that came over here as yeah, that's an odd one. Uh, in some ways, it might be better than this one, but there are definitely elements of this that work, like uh, the build to the picture. Um, John Carlin and Vanessa Howard are definitely better than anything that's in that film that you're thinking of. I can't remember who the hell directed it. It wasn't Damiano Damiani, but it was, was, it was it, something like that. Was it Massimo Dallamano? Yes, Massimo Dallamano. Thank you. Uh, that's exactly who it was, uh, a crime film, uh, an occasional, I hate to say Jalo, but you know, leaning towards Jalo, crime film, police attaché director. Um, yes, thrillers. Uh, and you know, there's nothing wrong with Dalamano's film. I like it, but I think I like the Curtis one better in some respects. And it's probably because of the casting more than anything else, but go ahead. No, that's all I have to say about that. All right. So uh, then he starts going back to these, you know, Brian Clemens, thrill, uh, excuse me, Brian Clemens thriller sort of things. Um, Nightmare at Forty Three Hillcrest, uh, which had Marriott Hartley in it, uh, who famously slept with just about everybody in history. Remember, I just wrote that book, I Should Have Taxi. <laughs> it was a big, like, close celebrity in the '80s. Like, oh yeah, maybe we run to Marriott Hartley. She might sleep with you too. Uh, but, oh yeah, uh, she was a slut. I didn't know that. Oh, she's yeah. a total slut. Yeah. And she admitted it. That's when she wrote this book, an autobiography at that time. And it was a big deal back in maybe 85, 86. Um, not long after her fame from Taxi. Uh, Good-looking woman, too. Uh, but it's basically, yeah, the cops are looking for drug dealers, and they bust this family's house, you know, thinking that, oh, yeah, this is, my, this is where it is. And instead of saying, oh, well, we made a mistake, we fucked up, and then, you know, obviously, especially in those days, nowadays, they just brush under the carpet, and who cares? Oh, yeah, raw cops. But back then, it would have been, you know, it, it probably would have given them a lot of shit. It might have gotten them, like, written off the force or suspended, or, you know, they would have been in the papers, you know, all kinds of stuff. So instead of doing that, they go and they actually plant drugs in the house and change, like, all the um, the investigative uh, records. Like, you know, when, okay, here's the police report to make it look like, oh, yeah, this is who it was all along this family. And supposedly this thing was based on a true story. That's the best thing. Uh, so Dan Curtis directed this along with Layla Swift, who is one of the Dark Shadows directors. Um, it's a dark film. It's it's. I enjoyed it, but it was like I enjoyed it in the sense of sitting there with in horror and with my mouth hanging open the whole time, like, oh, my God, how is people going to get out of this? Uh, once again, this whole Watergate uh, thing of knowing that uh, the powers that be are not your friend, and you have to kind of make it out on your own uh, because they're not going to help you. That's for damn sure. Um, but he did another one after this that was a little strange, a little more supernatural called The Invasion of Carol Enders, had of all people. Meredith Baxter Bernie, ugh, ugh. Uh, and, and John Carlin's in it once again, and basically, um, 
this woman gets murdered and she gets into an accident. Baxter gets into an accident and this dead woman's ghost ends up uh, taking over her life more or less and tries to make her go and investigate the murder of and, you know, while doing weird shit to her. It's not great. Um, it's not bad. It's definitely more supernatural than thriller, but it's still not really up to snuff like the other ones we were talking about. I don't assume you even saw either of these, but you know if you did, go ahead and t- pitch in. Um, so then he goes to one that I really, really like. It's kind of a Night Stalker done very differently. There are problems with it. There's some serious problems with it, actually, one of which being the Star Wars thinnest. Um it's called the Norlis Tapes, if I didn't mention that already. It was supposed to be a pilot for a series, but of course, you know, like a lot of pilots at that time, it didn't really get taken and nobody picked it up. Uh, once again, investigative reporter, he finds this thing, this uh, sculptor basically, uh, and apparently he is like a zombie. You know, he made this pack with a, a demon, uh, and it's basically for eternal life kind of thing. He comes back from the dead, and. There's things involved with it, like his ex-wife, who they're trying to hide things. Uh, Mystery meets Night Stalker, but done a little bit more like the Night Stalker show than the two uh, movies we had mentioned earlier. But I really like it. It's got a dark, uh, twisted atmosphere to it. And because you're going beyond things like vampires and people that just live forever and whatever, and getting into the realm of you know not just zombies but you know um, angelic spirits more or less, it really feels extremely dark. It actually feels darker than the Night Stalker in a lot of ways. Uh, but again, Thinnis, he's acceptable. He's not a bad actor by any means. It's just he doesn't have the charm. Uh, and the hard scrabble, you know, anti-hero-ness of uh, Kolchak of Darren McGavin is just kind of there. Uh, you don't really care about him. You don't care about any of the people involved. Angie Dickinson's in it. She's a, her usual annoying self. Uh, Claude Akins pops up again. Michelle fucking Carey, the most annoying girl ever. Very pretty girl, but annoying as shit. You might remember her from Elvis's uh, Live a Little, Love a Little. How is that squeaky voice? I talk like this. Oh, my God. You just want to kill her from her voice. Uh, and Vanetti. Oh, well, but, but, but that, no, that's good for fans of petite, uh, eth- ethnic petite girls. She's very pretty. So it's just that voice is deadly. And um, Vanetta McGee's in it, um, who was in stuff like The Grand Silence, for example. Uh, you know, pretty black girl. Um, you know, there are things about this, like I said, that really, really work. It's really creepy. It's really dark. It's really fatalistic, uh, and it's got that um, weird uh, supernatural, esoteric sort of like, oh my god, you know, <laughs> that kind of a feel to it. Uh, but like I said, you don't care about any of the characters. Uh, you know, like Carrie's always annoying. Uh, Dickinson's always annoying. Roy Thennis has no personality really, so it. Failed because of that. I think if they would have had somebody on the caliber of a Darren McGavin in there, if they would have had better, I don't want to say better actresses in the case of somebody like Fernanda McGee, I like her, but, you know, with the others, if they would have cast different people, uh, you know, because obviously Angie Dickinson was hot police girl or whatever it was, police woman, um, they, they might have had a better shot at actually at least doing another film, if not a TV series. So it's failed. It's a failed pilot, but 
it's a very, very interesting one, particularly for fans of the Kolchak films and series, especially the films. So anything you want to say about this one? No, no, I think we covered that one. Yeah. And the statue scared the hell out of me, too, when I first saw it. I was like, whoa! <laughs> uh, so, oh, wait, wait, wait. I thought we were talking about something. Oh, we're talking about Norlis, correct? Yeah, we're talking right? about Norlis, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Well, you know, the thing about this Norlis is I think if it, it didn't... They were trying for a series. And yeah. it certainly begins and ends eerie enough. Right. And, you know, if Roy Thins wasn't so fucking stiff... Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that's that's why tennis for you. You know, I I I saw him at a con years ago, if not more, and he was sitting in the hello, sir, the guy. <laughs> he wasn't so stiff. This could have probably went on. As it is, he was adequate. I think yeah. the problem is, is way too much voiceover. Yep. You know, and and. I think what the story is, uh, it's creepy for TV. It's creepy as fuck. Yes. It's actually, if the Night Stalker, which is like three years earlier, kind of weirded you out a little bit. And it was very intense for TV. This, this will freak you out more. Intense. Yep, this exactly. This will freak you out more. And you are in all my comments so far. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, yeah, no, exactly. But but what I, what I really want to say is, did have a problem with the guy who played... The, uh, the the obviously Greek looking guy yes. who played the uh, the dead husband because yep. I, I I don't know he just like it was a too familiar a face and I rather they have put some more thought into that yeah and it, so, another failing about this yeah. if you want to call it a failing is that it was very very obviously Kolchak Redux I mean the fact that he was yeah. instead of uh, reciting into a tape recorder for his typing and then throwing it in the garbage because he can't publish it for the newspaper story. Here he is again. He's a newspaper guy. He's doing a desk reporting, uh, recording into the thing about his story that he probably can't publish. Uh, and the shtick about this one that would have been really interesting if they had continued it and made it a series is that he was dead or you know gone and nobody knew where the hell he went. And all the people had it, his newspaper and magazine, was these tapes that he sent them. So this was like right. the first tape exactly. they listened to. And, okay, look what happened to him after that. Where did he go? And because they never took off, you know, I got this pilot, you're left very unsatisfied at the end. But it also makes it super fucking creepy. Uh, even beyond right. anything that's going on in it, it's like, oh, my God, this guy's probably dead. And what the fuck happened to him? We don't know. You're never going to find out. <laughs> hey, yeah. you know, it's like, whoa, okay. Think about that a little bit. It'll really freak you out after if you think about this in the middle of the night or something. Uh, so I really yeah, think Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the feelings of it is that he, he he wrote it so well, Dan Curtis, or co-wrote it so well, that and directed it fairly efficiently, that um, it just became too fucking creepy. <laughs> And yeah, so every you know, like I'm sure, I'm sure the powers that be at the network were like, so in between snorts of coke, so <laughs> <laughs> so if we pick this up every week, we gotta put in another tape because the guy's dead, right? Yeah, I think so. So you know, I think that would just be too dark. And honestly, 
even though you had the Night Stalker TV series, it, it was kind of a, as good as it was, a boulderized version of the TV movies. So this is much darker and scarier. So it'll freak you out a hell of a lot more than the Night Stalker ever did or the Night Strangler ever did. So picture doing this as an episodic TV show. I think it would have been fantastic, but the networks are probably like, no, we can't do this. We're going to get complaints from you know the Mary Whitehouses of the world. Forget about it. It's never going to happen. Uh, and especially since they had picked doing a story about a demon, you know, bringing people back from the dead and shit, and packs with a devil more or less. Uh, that was way too much. It was kind of like what happened with Constantine, which was a fantastic show. Uh, but you know, the, the network powers that be were kind of. I was surprised they had it on in the first place, but you know, they got uh, cold feet and that's it. You know, who knows if it's ever going to come out on fucking disc? I hope it does. Uh, it really needs to. Excellent series, but same deal. So um, moving on from this, unless you got anything else you want to say about it. He did uh, what I really think is his last really good film. I know people are going to kill me for that one because uh, there's something coming up that everybody loves, but uh, which was Scream of the Wolf. Um, Peter Graves is in this damn thing uh, right off of Mission <laughs> Impossible. You know, and I liked him in Mission Impossible and all that. You know, later on he's going to do biography and become a joke. Uh, but he's here and he's basically doing a sort of most dangerous game kind of thing where he is uh, a hunter and uh, novelist, you know, like a Frank Buck type, I guess. Um, but he gets called in by the local cops that, you know, somebody knows him who I think was, uh, was uh, no, no, that's not who it is. I forget who the guy who called men was, but uh, I was going to say a name who was the baddie actually. Uh, his old friend is involved or in an area where uh, this girl who is either already his girlfriend or becomes his girlfriend, who is Joanne Flug once again, like we mentioned earlier. Um, and they're all kind of there. There's this guy who's the adventure writer, this girl who either was or becomes his girlfriend, and his longtime pal is also a hunter. But Oh, Clint and, Walker. Yeah. yeah, Clint Walker. And he's very Nietzschean, and he's got some really – it's not as over the top as like a Count Zaroff. You know, it's not like trolling his mustache. Like, oh, 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 Todd Slaughter. Uh, he's very well thought out and cold, and kind of smirking the whole time. Like, yeah, you know, I got one over on you. He's, you know, you're, just, you're petty, and you, you can be one of us. You can be one of the elite. You know, you know, you're too scared to do it, kind of a thing. Very true to life. Very Koch brothers. You know, uh, creepy shit, and. There's something involved with a lot of murders. That's why he got kind of called into this in the first place because, you know, the guy, uh, the cop or whatever can't figure it out. It's like, yeah, this looks like it's the animals involved, but then again, I don't know what the hell's going on. You know, do you have any experience tracking? Because basically they brought him in as a tracker. Uh, what the hell's going on here? Why did these, you know, animal prints suddenly seem to turn into guys' prints and, you know, what's happening? And you can kind of get the idea of where we're going here. Very, very creepy, friggin' good film. Uh, never even released on DVD in a legitimate print. It was one of these public domain, you know, multi packs that I found it on, and I remembered seeing it when I was younger. I'm like, wow, this film was great. Uh, I really, really liked this. It's again, if he hadn't already done the Norse tips, if he hadn't already done the Night Stalker, the Night Strangler, Night of Dark Shadows, you know, even to some extent, uh, picture during Gray and um, 
the uh, Jekyll and Hyde, but those are lesser. This would be like, wow, this film is fantastic. Dan Curtis was great just by itself. And, of course, Richard Matheson wrote this, obviously. Uh, but, you know, as it is, you're lucky to find it on a, a PD, uh, you know, multi-disc job for five bucks or whatever the hell. Uh, and you can. It's out there. So I recommend you to go look for this. Uh, yeah, I think this really appears good. on some of those milk, those milk creeks. Exactly. Uh, Exactly what I'm talking about, those kind of jobs. And that's and a big mystery to me because, I mean, not to jump too much off the topic, uh, how the hell is Mill Creek put out these, well, I don't think they're doing it much anymore, but they used to put no. out these box sets, 100 movies on 10 discs, and you're like, wow, really? Yep. And there was some, there's some cool stuff in there. Yeah, there's, there's, still, there's some cool yeah. There's one, I forget what it's called, it's like Gothic or something, and it's like you said, it's got like 100 films on it, and most of them are great films that you can't find otherwise. I mean, yes, sometimes the prints are atrocious and almost unwatchable, yeah. but other ones are not that bad. And I'll tell you, you can find a lot of Bill Rabane films that way. Uh, I interviewed yeah. him on Third Eye, anybody who's interested. Uh, you can find a lot of these sort of films, these quirky TV movies. Uh, you can find Larry Buchanan stuff, yeah. Larry Buchanan, yeah. There's a lot of good stuff. I mean, I even found some Eurohorse, one of them, uh, which is more like a four-disc or something, you know, like Undead or some crap like that. There's a dumb generic names, and it's on a Kmart or whatever, or Walmart. Uh, but, you know, one of them had something like, I think it was The Horrible Sexy Vampire, the weird German horror film. I'm like, what the hell is this yeah. going on here? I mean, really strange shit. You might find Polonia Brothers films on some of these. I mean, you never knew what you were going to get. And, of course, I spoke to Mark Polonia a couple of times on Third Eye. Um, you know, there was really – there were and, and we out. And we all know how hard it is to get nasty films on DVD now that that company who put them out and then went bust a month later. Yep. They're all almost impossible to get. And, and Mill Creek, uh, they're one of their sets, I have a few of them, one of their sets had like like six six freaking Nashi pictures. And really? there were supposedly TV prints, and some, one or two of these pictures do have some stuff in them. So, uh, you don't have Fury of the Wolfman, do you? Cause I, you know, and you know what I need? Uh, Werewolf versus the Yeti. Uh, that was, or Night of the Howling Beast. I have, I have a dub of that somewhere. Oh, yeah, because yeah, I mean, I that like was my... five copies of that somewhere. Night of the Howling Beast, a.k.a. World vs. the Yeti, is the one film that they did not put out from Nashi that I'm like, why? Why? This is always my favorite. They split on Fright Night all the time. I loved that film. After Horror Rise from the Tomb, that was my second favorite. Never on disc. All the ones that they put out. There, there, and there's several different edits. I, I actually wrote about that for uh, the publication Monster about a year ago. Mm-hmm. I wrote about the various edits of that picture. Yeah, I, I remember the nudie one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's like four or five different edits to that. It could be it could be this kind of movie. The movie could be about depending on what they took out of it or what they put back into it. And those <laughs> of you who are interested, we talked uh, Nashi. Uh, I think it was like week six. Uh, we did uh, yeah. you know, Muchas Gracias, Senor Nashi. Uh, yeah, we're checking show. out for those of you who are interested. Listen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anything you want to say about Scream of the Wolf, or I don't know if you've seen it. <laughs> I did. Yeah, I did briefly. I just want to say. Uh, uh, Joanne Fluke, the fake black girls in this. And, uh, and <laughs> I want you to know, I never thought of her that way. I figured she was Sicilian, maybe Jewish from that name. I don't know. She she was dark, but I never thought she was that black. <laughs> I mean, it matters. Jewish it just, you know. girl that, that was dark that they put in black roles. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> That's reverse, man. That's well. That brings up a point. Anyway, we're not going there. So. Uh, <laughs> 
Clint Walker's in this. And you know what? Clint Walker is one of those guys. He was on the TV show, uh, not Raw High, but the other one. Uh, oh, Western uh, thing. Not Bonanza. What's the other one? Uh, the, the Rifleman with, with Chuck Connors? No, no, it's Chuck Connors. Chuck Connors. No, Clint had his own show. <clears throat> he was a big guy. He was a big, broad-shouldered guy, big guy, like 6'9". And you know what? Out of a lot of these guys, he had a very Holmes earthy appeal. I thought not he was here. decent. I, here he well, is. I know he's decadent. Here. I love him in this movie. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, yeah. But one of the points I was trying to get to is that uh, people assumed that Clint Walker was this, like, big, dumb, Texan-type fucking yeah. cowboy guy. And, you know, all you need to do is see Robert Aldrich's The Dirty Dozen. Was all one of the best cast ensemble pieces ever. This oh, yeah, what kind of movie it is. Don Rickles, and he's so good at it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah, and 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 uh, Clint Walker's in that playing Posey yep. of all people. He's a down home boy, and and there's there's layers to his performance, and that just gives you an idea of this guy is not what people think he is. Right, exactly. And this picture here. Right, exactly. And this picture here, Scream of the Wolf, oddly enough, is one of the movies where either it was drawn out of him or he decided, you know what, I'm not going to play it like I usually play it. I'll just try to do something yeah. different. Yeah, so like if you're expecting like yeah. a dumb Texan, you know, down-home Jimmy Stewart type, yes, man, I reckon that's right. No, bullshit. This guy comes off as whip-smart. He has one over on everybody in the cast, including... Peter Graves, who is you know well above everybody else in the cast, you know uh, in terms of knowledge, if not intellect, and you know world world wisdom. You know we're talking about in terms of the story, obviously, but you know nonetheless, uh, he pulls that off. Peter Graves isn't that bad an actor, uh, but Clint Walker was like mouth dropping. I'm like, holy shit, you believe this guy? And like I said, it's not mustache twirling, you know, Count Zoroff territory. This is, yeah, okay, I can see this. So bravura performance from this guy. All respect to him, just if, if for nothing else than for this film. I love this one. You know, if you can find it, I forget which public domain discs are, it's on, but go out there and find it, Screaming the Wolf. It's worth your time. Um, so, after this, mm-hmm. unless there's anything else you want to say there, uh, he did something yeah. called Come, Come Die With Me, which is another one of these jobs, uh, one of these thriller things. Uh, of all people, I mean, Brennan's in it. Uh, and George Maharis, uh, wasn't he uh, the guy that was in, um, was it Route 66 with Kooky Burns? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Martin Miller. Martin Miller, I was Yeah, yeah. George Maharis was the, the poor man's George Hamilton. Yes, exactly. You're right. He's got a George Hamilton feel. You were exactly right. Uh, and Eileen Brennan's there. She's kind of like this frumpy housemaid or some shit, and she's all hot for him. And in the meantime, he's involved with, of all people, Catherine Lee Scott, I've met this woman. You know, she's a pretty girl, but she's all kind of like dopey and homey. Like, oh, yeah, how you doing? You know, like a girl next door, uh, you know, helpful hints from Heloise. Let me teach you how to cook a pie or some shit. And here she is, and she is one hot fucking mama. I mean, she's there, not topless because it's made for television, but she's in like a black lace see-through bra, and she's got like her hair is kind of cut in a shag, and she's fucking hot in this thing. And she's basically playing a slut. Uh, fantastic for just for that. You know, it's worth it just to see Kathleen Scott at a point where you're like, 
I never paid attention to this girl before. What's going on here? <laughs> you know, I was like, whoa, okay, I like that. But, uh, you know, the rest of it is just strange, and it's kind of got uh, somewhere he'd go again with Karen Black later in one of the episodes of Trilogy of Terror uh, with this kind of creepy, you know, old bag who's got a secret kind of a thing with Ian Brennan. Um Again, I don't know if you've seen this one, so we may move on from that. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with it. So, yeah, so again, these are out there. You can get most of these films on uh, – they put out a bunch of twofers. Uh, I don't know who the hell was MGM or somebody. Uh, Dark Sky, I don't know. Uh, and two of these films, oh, these television Sky. films, are out together. So you can get like you know two of them and you got four of them that are together. But they're all thrillers. They're not really like horror films. You know, Is Dark Sky wanna... still around? Can you still I don't think they Dark are. Sky stuff? I think no, so. I don't think it's like out of print and expensive, but I don't know if they put anything out. Uh, I haven't heard from him in a couple of years. Uh, so then he does his probably last of these uh, you know, traditional horror jobs, which is The Turn of the Screw. Captain uh, Lee Scott's in it, uh, but it's more like what you would expect from Dark Shadows. Uh, Lynn Redgrave's in it. But she's not naked, you know that kind of a thing. Uh, there's really not much to recommend it, <laughs> you know. Seriously, I mean, Slim Redgrave not naked. It's like seeing Helen Mirren with her clothes on. Who cares? You, know? <laughs> you go to look, Helen Mirren's in woohoo nude, uh, or like they made the joke in Coupling. Uh, who's the one I always liked? Uh, the British girl that was always fucking naked in her stuff. It's a nice rack too. Um, Ah, oh, damn, I can't think of her name right now. Uh, perky English girl with a short hair cut, uh, very big in the 70s. She was in Logan's Run, for one thing. Uh, Jenny Agutter? No. Jenny Agutter, yes. I was like, oh, Jenny Agutter. She was flat. She was flat. Cute. I liked her. Uh, no, no, I she, liked her a lot, too, but she was flat. She'd always be freaking naked. And it was the same thing like Helen Mirren. And, uh, you know, if you see Lynn Redgrave and she's got her clothes on, I'm like, why are you watching it? Uh, but... Uh, so that's the kind of thing here. Yes, it's an Amar James story, you know. Ooh, is it really just everybody's psychology or their ghosts? You know, that kind of bullshit. It's got layers to it, but I am not a big fan of Amar James, and I'm certainly not a fan of uh, the turn of the screw with these stupid, creepy children. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I guess of turn of the screw adaptations, it's probably one of the better ones, but what is that saying? Uh, I really don't care for it at all. So, is there anything you want to say about it before we move on? Yeah, it's, it's not great. It's not yeah. great. I did, I did see this not too long ago. I did see this uh, rehearsal for the show. And the <laughs> funny thing was, uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. And the funny thing was, it's like the unofficial sequel to Turn of the Screw is The Nightcomers, which is yes. that bizarre. Freaking movie with Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando. and Stephanie Beecham. Oh, Beecham, right? Beecham. Beecham uh, from from a couple of those Hammer pictures. But that now was because, again, she was topless. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Beecham yeah. Was no, Stephanie Beecham had a had a hot rack. She had a hot yes, she body. Did. Yes, she did. And 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 and, and Marlon knew about it. So <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, that's a much better movie. It's a, it's a yes. similar kind of thing. It's hard to do this kind of stuff for TV. You know, um, it's hard to do this kind of stuff for TV and, and make it not put your 
freaking sleep. I mean, this yeah, is... Yeah, as I say, to make it watchable, you got to have... Uh, I hate to sound like a guy, but, you know, I am. So it's like, you got to have tits in it, basically. There's got to be something to keep you interested. There's got to be some blood. There's got to be some... If it's this kind of story... True, right, yeah. If you, if you drain all the... All right, if you make a gothic, melodramatic, melodrama romance in this day and age, well, this is, again, 20, 30 years ago, and... But then again, it was for TV, so we have to have allowances. Yeah. But if you siphon out all the hints of eroticism, then you could very well do that for television. You could do, yep. you could have that. But if you siphon it all out and drain it, then you're watching something to put you to sleep. Yeah, so. and don't forget, even James, that one of the things of this was the kids were supposedly possessed by, like, you know, the ghosts of whatever, some evil people that lived there that were adults. And the young boy tried to make out with the governess. You know, I think right. the scene is sort of in there, but it's more like he gives her a peck on the cheek. I'm like, what the hell is this? So any hints of eroticism that were there in the first place are completely wiped out. So it just sucks. Right, you true, know, I, true, true. Yeah. Um, so he does another, actually something completely weird now. He actually did a comedy heist film that I have not seen called The Great Ice Ripoff with, check this cast out, Gig Young, probably back from the bar, uh, Grayson Hall, <laughs> also back from the bar, from the and bar. Lee J. Cobb, <laughs> also, back, also from the bar. back from the bar. <laughs> so I would love to see this just to see if any of them are sober, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a little strange uh, side uh, moment there. Was, so then, was, it, was this a TV movie? Yeah, TV movie, 1974. Wow. Uh, it, it, it must be very obscure now. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, so then he does the one that pretty much everybody thinks is the greatest thing ever. And there's only one reason for that, and we'll get to that quickly. Um, 1975's Trilogy of Terror. That hideous cross-eyed harridan from hell herself, Miss Karen Black. Uh, anybody that oh, wants don't to be so nasty. Yes, anybody nasty. that wants to hear some stories about Karen Black, uh, just to get an idea of the person she was, listen to my interview with Herschel Gordon-Lewis. Uh, after he gets done with his like 45-minute monologue, and we actually have a discussion, <laughs> uh, he lets off some stories about working with her on uh, The Prime Time, which was actually her first film. And already, already, I'm like, oh, God, this woman. Uh <laughs> So she gets three stories. She's got a barn. Wait, 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 hold on. Was that was that your experience with HG? Because that was my yeah. experience with them recently. Uh, yeah. Back in the, when was it? Spring? No. I called the, up. I, I had a I had a two hours to record basically. You know, because that's all I had at that yeah. time. And he spent forty five minutes doing a monologue. He got my first question. And by the time I was done, I was practically falling asleep. I'm like, okay, well, you addressed some of this stuff, but let's go back. Well, <laughs> yeah. this, this, is, this is what happened. They, they, I, I was told the last minute I'm doing, I'm doing a, a Q and A with him. I said, oh, really? Okay, cool, cool. I talked to him. He's, he was unaware of it. Then this person said, oh yeah, he's ready. He shows up. I ask one question. Yep. Room is packed full of people, mind you. I ask one question. Not only did a riff on a monologue, he started singing songs from 2000 Maniacs. <laughs> Leaving yep. me sitting next to him bewildered. Yep. That's exactly what happened. I was like, it was my first question. I'm like, guy, like, what what the hell? I got to ask him some questions here. I couldn't even interrupt him. Like, yeah, whatever. Just let him finish I mean, up. But, but, but he did it so well, though. He's like, yeah. I bet no, you're wondering stories. why I didn't answer your question, but there's a reason. Back in 
entertaining raconteur. It's just you can't get him to fucking shut up. And <laughs> by the time we started getting the question, you know what? He he's such the guy. He's a smart man. He's a smart yeah. man, though he's 102 years old. He's a smart man, and you know if you interrupt him, he will. Because he's a really smart guy. He's you know he sells real. He used to sell real estate, so those guys will burn you. He will say something to like just blow you away. So you're like, yeah. I'll just let him talk. Exactly. No. Just let him go. And by the time we finally got to actually, you know, doing the interview, 45 minutes in, we had to rush things and cut questions because he was like, yeah. okay, well, you know, I'm running out of time. I'm like, Jesus, guy. Uh, but yeah, that's another story. Uh, it's worth listening to, but you might want to skip past that 45 minute monologue. Or <laughs> uh, not. Or not. Maybe you just want to hear him talk. I mean, he, he is entertaining, uh, and he's got that resonant voice. Uh, anyway, so first story she does yeah. is she's an uptight professor who's got this pervert uh you know basically a pervy student who's like all hot for her with the milk thing and he blackmails her into having sex with him but you know it actually turns out she's the one manipulating him and she's done it before all right so what next one she's playing sisters that can't stand each other but she's really just a schizo horrible really painful to watch the same territory that colleen brennan was mining a couple of years ago in uh, come die with me uh but not even as good uh, and then the one that everybody remembers, which and there's only one reason you remember it. It's not for Karen Black. It's because of a fucking voodoo doll. There's a little uh, creepy African voodoo doll that she gets that comes to life, and it's like and running around. And remember, this is before CG and all these great special effects. So seeing this happen, I was like, what the fuck was that? I remember every time I came on TV, like even my folks, if they were there, I'm like, oh my god, look, what's happening here? This is, and it would freak you out, give you the chills. Uh, running around and freaking out, making crazy noises, and it got a big old knife from the kitchen and it's stabbing through boxes and whatever. And then at the end, it ends up, you know, I, you know, again, giving away the story just because this movie sucks. Uh, it, it ends up possessing her, and she's sitting there just like the, the doll with the fake teeth in her mouth, stabbing the floor with the knife, waiting for her mother to show up. I mean, it's just like, okay, that was really fucked up and creepy and so effective, but. Not because of Karen Black. She's horrible. She's horrible in everything I've ever seen her in. Uh, you know, remember Airport 75? Good Lord. Uh, <laughs> overacting. Uh, she's got, like, all the aspects of Linda Carter, but, you know, amplified, where it's like, okay, I want to run this whole production, but I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. You know, just give me my space. Oh, my God. can't stand that woman. Uh, but anyway... Everybody remembers it because of that last sequence. Nobody even remembers about the other two. Uh, and there's a reason for that. It's because of Karen Black. So anything you want to say? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's iconic mythology for the 70s TV movies. You know, we, we had the Ninth Stalker, which was Dan Curtis. We had this, which is Dan Curtis. Yeah, the best episode that one with the Zuni doll. Is it really, really good? No, is it creepy? Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say it's creepy. That episode's um, creepy. Is, is it as good as something which is creepy and downbeat? Like, no. Uh, you know what I'm thinking of? Uh, don't don't open the door. Don't start. Well, don't look in the basement all those? Eh, I don't like those. The, the, no, the, the SF Bramber films. The, 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 the oh, TV movie. Oh. We can't don't be afraid of the dark. Yeah, that was so much Don't better be than this. And yeah, once yeah, again, yeah, Karen yeah, Black yeah. was not in it, so <laughs> it was much better. <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah, that, but see, that was really good. Yes. And 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 we remember that for its creepy little thing. So you know, 
There was a period where America was fascinated with creepy little people. Look, her village is career. Yep. But, uh, <laughs> and Emmanuel uh, Lewis's uh, career, and Gary Coleman's career, and. <laughs> were they creepy? Oh, uh, uh, they were. Anyway, creepy. I think we both agree <laughs> that birth offerings is more well remembered than it actually is. Yes, another one that kind of sucks. Uh, not as bad, though, because it's got Oliver Reed, but it's not really an Oliver Reed performance. I mean, you want to see something better from a couple years later, even. Go to Venom with him and Klaus Kinski trying to rip up the, the two of them try to chew up the scenery. Um, or later on, he did a film with Nico Mastarakis, which I can't remember the name of the damn thing. It's the one with Brian Thompson we mentioned last time. Uh, those of you who are interested, you got to go check out that Nico Mastarakis interview. Talk about the rock and tour. Great stories from that guy. Love Love that man. Love his films. Um, you know, Nico, if you're listening out there, yeah, you know, Yasu, uh, great guy. But, you know, he told a story that is unbelievable. You've got to hear it to believe it. It's a true Oliver Reed story. Uh, I'll leave it at that. I really don't want to give it away because it's just too funny. Uh, something he did in a helicopter on, like, basically all the actors uh, <laughs> that were working with him. Um so anyway, uh, he's in this thing, but again, he's very subdued for Oliver Reed. I mean, yeah. even something like the Shuttered Room, or you know, he's not—he's not doing an Oliver Reed performance. He's kind of bloated and fat and drunk, but he's just kind of showing up and phoning it in. This is probably the only time I've seen Oliver Reed phone in a performance. Uh, and who's in it? Karen Black. Oh, and uh, Lee H. Montgomery, the annoying little kid, is in it. And he basically is like a star. He's like top build. Uh, so you get the picture of what's going on there, too. The only things that sort of save it, I'm not a big Betty Davis fan, but she's effective uh, as like the maid, basically. And Burgess Meredith is in it, as the kind of the creepy old caretaker. And, you know, this is basically, this, this is what the, the bottom line of the plot. This irritating fucking family, which is Oliver Reed, this bitch Karen Black, and this annoying little brat from Lee H. Montgomery, rents a summer home, right? But the caveat to this is they got it really cheap, right? They don't have that much money. guys like a writer or some shit. Like, here, uh, the only thing is we've got the woman that runs the house, this old lady. She's living up in the attic. You know, just make sure we'll get her some food or whatever the hell up there. The maid will take care of her. Just, you know, don't mind that. And you got the house for the summer. All right. But then a whole bunch of supernatural shit goes down, and of course there's a mystery of who's this one up in the attic, and then it gets really freaky. Now, there are some good supernatural elements to this, and there are one or two fair performances in it. It's just people remember this as being much, much better than it is. It's it's not that good. It's taken Trilogy of Terror and taken it a step to the side. I don't know if it's down or up, but it's it's different. It's a little bit more theatrical feeling, even though I believe it was I believe it was still a television movie. Um do you know any different? Was it actually theatrically released? I didn't think oh, so. Oh it's actually a theat- yeah, no. It's oh, actually okay. a theatrical release. Yeah, yeah. It was actually a theatrical release. It was in the movie theaters. Uh I saw it in the movie theaters. I you know what reminds me of with the it reminds me of a really bad leg, uh, version of The Legacy, the one with Catherine Ross and Roger Daltrey. That was good. Oh, yeah. Burn Offerings yeah, is the yeah, shit yeah. version of that. It's, it's not entertaining at all. <laughs> I, the movie theater I saw this in in Brooklyn was playing Ilsa upstairs in the second theater, <laughs> so that gives you an idea. Wow. What's going on? Um, Offer- yeah, the Kingsway Theater in Brooklyn, New York. Downstairs was Burnt Offerings. Upstairs was Ilsa. Harm Keeper of the Oil Sheiks. That was the first one. 
And, uh, what a second, it doesn't matter. And I remember that I was so disappointed by burnt offerings, I snuck yep. up to see Ilsa. And <laughs> boy, Better choice. I in trouble. Yeah, yeah. What a, I should have stayed downstairs. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, but I still prefer it to burnt offerings, uh, which says something. Uh, yeah, yeah, burnt offerings is, yeah, I agree, a subdued Oliver Reed performance. Uh, not quite sure what's going on with that. I mean, um, the whole picture, he's actually, even when he's supposed to be, I hate to use this word again, but agitated, he's very subdued. And, yeah, uh, very calm and doesn't care. He's like, eh, whatever. Paycheck. Yeah, I don't think he was drunk either. It's, it's. I think he was just doing the paycheck. Maybe he was on a, a bender. Maybe, maybe he wasn't drinking for this three. Maybe he period. just realized know. what a bitch he was working with and didn't want to be there. <laughs> He's trying to get out as quick as possible. Could have been. I, 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 was, I was working with two legendary ones. You know, you know the story. Well, yeah, but, Car- uh, Betty Davis but hated Karen Black. Karen well, Black hated Betty Black. Davis. <laughs> And all of the weeds in the middle probably drinking the fucking day away. So <laughs> yeah, man, roll cameras, and he's like, eh. <laughs> and, and then the movie had this, yes, it had Lee H. Montgomery from Ben. Ben, the two of us, he's a Which was like, oh, my God. Couldn't they tried to make a star out of a kid with a movie about a rat. Yes. <laughs> well, it was better than and how uh, Michael Miller. Jackson's career managed to survive that. I'll never know the story. So, but anyway. yes, we agree on that. Next. Yeah. <laughs> Next. Uh, Curse of the Black Widow, which I don't ever made it to DVD, so I have not seen this one. All these other ones I'd seen you know, over the last couple of years or whatever. This one I have not seen in decades. I remember seeing it as a child. Uh, Tony Francios is in it. Donna Mills is in it, of all people. Vic Morrow, Patty Duke. Uh, June Allison and June Lockhart, they've got some, like, old Hollywood in here. And yet, you know, I can't even comment on it because it's never been released as far as I know. Uh, have you seen it in years? I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. But I, I remember seeing it on TV. Yeah. Don't laugh. First run, so we were talking about 77, 78. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So by eighteen, nineteen. So the thing is, it was weird. It was creepy, and I think to this day, without having a backup of seeing it recently on DVD, yeah. I still think it was very well done. It's creepy. You know, Tony Franciosa is much maligned. I don't know why. I always liked him. I always liked him. He's not well. Go ahead. In general, I mean, not by us, but in general, much more line. And, yeah. and I think he's, he's really good. Vic Morrow, another guy who's done really, really good work. I mean, he's done shit work, too. Everybody does shit work. They want to make money, you know? Yeah. But uh, Vic Morrow was good in this. Um, the ladies you mentioned, I don't remember that well, but I remember the many creepy images. Yes. Uh, from this, from this uh, story. I definitely have memories in my head, too, from when I was pretty young, but I don't think I've seen it since, God knows, the early 80s. Um, if not, maybe it was first run. Who knows? Uh, so then he does Dead of Night, which is kind of like uh, Trilogy of Terror, but much better, much better. Um, again, three stories. Uh, Ed Begley Jr. is in one. Uh, basically, he it, it's like... Rush must have seen this one when they wrote Red Barchetta. He finds an old car and travels back through time. I'm like, yeah, okay, Red Barchetta. Uh, so um, 
Red Patrick McNeese in it uh, with Elisha Cook Jr. or something. Something about a vampire. And then you get this one. Okay, you thought the Zuni friggin' doll was creepy? Yeah, well, there's a singer in here called Bobby. Uh, and once again, Lee H. Montgomery's in it. But you know what? The kid was fucking creepy. Uh, basically, it's this shit about a mother who turns to the occult to bring her dead son back. And she gets something a little different than she expected. And it gets really, really weird. Uh, it's a really creepy stalking slash. I mean, just thinking about it, I'm actually getting some goosebumps. It's that fucking freaky. Uh I really like this one, but I would not recommend watching it before you go to sleep or something. Or, you know, God help you if you're, like, tripping on acid or something, you have some bad shit going down. Uh, it's creepy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I Don't agree. I on acid, agree, bro. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anything you want to say about that one? No, it's creepy. All right. <laughs> so then he... This is basically it for his uh, 70s uh, career, and he almost drops off the face of the earth. Uh, what he does is he makes a serious film, uh, When Every Day Was the Fourth of July, which is some autobiographical thing about like a Jewish family back in the 1930s. All right. You know, I was like, I think he had to get out of his system about his family. Or, all right, fine. Uh, he does Super Train he's involved with, which is a weird uh, TV series that didn't last for too long. Uh, they made like nine episodes and a two-hour pilot. He was the executive producer. Uh, it was kind of like, I very vaguely remember this damn thing. It was like the train was more than like an Orient Express even. It was more like a cruise ship. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and there would be stuff going on on it that was not even necessarily mysteries. It was kind of like Love American Style with Love Boat, you know, that kind of a thing. It was more like a drama. Very strange show. Uh, and I also of- remember him, I also remember him doing, uh, what was it that what Robert Mitchum, what was that? Um, I well, oh, uh, go ahead. at the end of his career, war, war and remembrance, war and whatever. Oh yeah, yeah, that was later, right? Um, he does the long days of summer, the intruders, me and the kid. I mean, who doesn't know shit is the love letter, saving Millie. We're going to like 2005 already. He is involved with the Dark Shadows revival series from the early 90s, which was kind of a flop. I remember watching it. Uh, I was glad they tried to do it, but it didn't really work. Ben Cross was... Yeah, no, I think Jonathan we should Fritz. discuss it. Yeah, yeah, at the, yeah. the show for that. Because, yeah, because I did watch it, and it wasn't... Yeah. I didn't think it was horrible. No, no. Uh, I liked the it was like, Yeah, it was like, oh shit, it's like Barbara Steele on Barbara TV. Barbara Steele. You know, yep. like... Barbara Steele playing... And she was playing the, the Grayson, Grayson Hall part, and... Um, and who was it? Was it Ben Cross? Was it Ben, ben Cross? Cross was the guy. Then you had that weird guy that was playing Willie Loomis, Ben something else. I can't remember. I didn't like him. He was too freaky. Yeah. He was like white trash. He was like uh, the meth head uh, version of Willie Loomis. Uh, and you had – who the hell else was in that thing? Uh, Eli Pouget. Ah. Remember her from – she had very brief fame during that time. Um, you know, it was it, – well, again, we'll talk about it when we get to the Dark Shadows show, but it was feasible. I liked it at the time, but compared to the original, yeah, it just doesn't work. And it was kind of failed. That's why it didn't last that long. It was only so many episodes. Well, well I mean, yeah, I mean, in finality, I think the problem with that kind of thing is if you're going to revive that, you have to do it with some of the hubris, some of the some of the stuff they had in the movie. Because yeah, yeah. after all, it is the mid-90s, and you have yep. to up that. You can't do it 
like it was a freaking, and it's, you know, prime time, it's at night now. You can't do it like it's a 4.30 soap opera anymore. Yep. You know, I think and, that was one of the issues. And like you mentioned, they were in Remembrance. Uh, you, there was a couple of things he did then, but most of them were covered. The oh, last thing he war. did. Was that it? Winter War? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the War of Remembrance was the one I'm seeing from 88. Uh, but I don't know if he's involved in Winds of War. I think it was somebody else. Yeah. Uh, but he, the last thing he did of note, if you will, was he brought back Trilogy of Terror. And I think he did it on like the USA Network or some crap. I remember seeing it when it was live in 96. And uh, this time, all right, at least he gave a better lead. He got rid of freaking Karen Black. He put in Lizette Anthony, who was, you know, Angelique in his Dark Shadows revival. I always liked Lizette Anthony. Uh, but... You know, she's not a strong actress in a lot of ways. Uh, and what he does... Wasn't she in Crawl? She was in Crawl, yes. Um, okay. He pulled the strongest parts from not only Trilogy of Terror, but Dead at Night. Because what does he do? He redoes Bobby, and he redoes the Zuni doll. So I'm like, okay, this should be great. All right? Okay, I don't know why he's redoing it, but fine. And yet, I don't know. Maybe it's because we've seen it all before. It, it just... I don't think it adds anything to the original. The originals were better. The originals were scarier, uh, even with Karen Black. Uh, whereas here, it was just kind of, I don't know. Uh, the only thing I'd say about it, other than Lizzie Anthony being in it, which is much easier to watch, easier on the eyes, if nothing else, than Karen Black with a cross eyes, uh, is Grant Wynn Davies, who we both love from uh, Forever Night, was in this as well. Uh, that's really all you can say about it. It was kind of a ignominious ending to his career. Uh, he did poke around for another decade doing things here and there. Uh, you know, saving million our fathers, uh, mistress of comedy. He's doing like some things for the uh, DVD releases, I think. You know, the little uh, documentary production type jobs, but nothing much. I mean, technically, Trilogy of Terror was kind of the end of his career. Uh, the second one I'm talking yeah. about. Uh, so really... No, no. He, he was known for what he did with Dark Shadows, and then he was known for all this great TV movies he did in the 70s, and then that was it. I don't know where the hell he went after that. <laughs> uh, oh, but what remind me what a great show that was. Oh, God. <laughs> what, he, uh, what he gave us was definitely worthwhile and deserving of respect. Uh, because, you know, who the hell else was doing stuff like this? You had one-off TV movies in the 70s that were great. We mentioned some of them earlier. But who the hell did so many of them and so consistently? And I'm sorry, Richard Matheson was like my favorite writer at that time. He was good. I mean, that guy could scare the shit out of you. I mean, it would be a bright, sunny day out, and he'd have you like looking over your shoulder. You know, like, like you, you, all of a sudden you're like Ira Levin after watching all of his films. Like, huh, who's that to get me? <laughs> Those of you who know the Ira Levin's books and movies, uh, things like Rosemary's Baby for one. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> that was a friend of mine's joke. He's like, yeah, can you picture like Ira Levin like, all day long walking around, like, <laughs> peeking over his shoulder, like scared to death. Uh, well, everything was always like urban paranoia for him. But anyway, uh, so is there anything else you want to say about Dan Curtis before we uh, close out? No, I think, we, I think we covered it well. We hope you enjoyed the show. And we'll be back next week with... 
Next week, we're doing week 28 already. I can't believe we got that far. Uh, American Gothic, John Carpenter and Toby Hooper. Uh, we're leaving European shores, and we're going to discuss two prominent directors of homegrown cult cinema. Uh, worshipping at the unlikely altars of John Ford and Howard Hawks, USC film school student John Carpenter dropped out to kick off what was one of the most distinctive American directorial careers of the 70s and 80s. Uh, while few would defend his post-1995 productions as a rule, it's unquestioned that for almost 20 years, John Carpenter is one of the most important American directors. From classics of urban action like Assault on Precinct 13, a biopic of Elvis, post-apocalyptic favorites like Escape from New York, to one of the most famed slasher franchises ever, and some of the most distinctive horror films ever made, John Carpenter kept his options open and made as many non-genre oddities as he did cult classics right from the dawn of his career. Uh, and then college professor and documentarian Toby Hooper uh, seemed to come out of left field with his gruesome yet strangely bloodless take on the Ed Gein murders, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, parlaying this film's unprecedented suggestion to a career in oddball horror, he gives some very strange but often effective chillers like Eaten Alive, Salem's Lot, The Fun House, and Life Force, not to mention a strangely mainstream CG fest poltergeist. So join us as we discuss two American cult film directors next week, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. So, uh, anything else you wanted to say before we hit the farewell button? <laughs> I, I I was thinking of something, but after that monologue, I got lost. So <laughs> we'll be back next week. And, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll be back next week, and uh, I think we're close to our one year anniversary. Yes. So, uh, well, well, yeah, I think so. So, uh, yeah, one year. Wow. So uh, expect more fun and more off-the-wall topics and fun, fun, fun. And wide-ranging discussion on uh, cult uh, film, literature, music, and television, among other things. (laughs) That as well. And uh, we will see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We hope you enjoyed a little drawing and chat on Dan Carson's episode. Uh, next week, we're talking American Gothic and, uh, sorry, uh, John Carpenter and Toby Hooper. Uh, so if you are a musician or a filmmaker, you can join us on here. Uh, drop us a line at facebook.com forward slash one or take a look at our website, weirdseasons1.wordpress.com. Weird Jeans Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the Big Pop Online Network. I'm Bob Yeah.
Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, and meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various thoughts on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio.